everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Know that when you stare into the boob window, the boob window stares back also. Uh, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekwarts, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comic books, news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, there's a very interesting article on Seekwart by Jarrett Maza talking about the role of horror in the world of Batman. Some pretty good stuff. And support us on the Patreon. Now, uh, this is a pretty special episode because for the first time, we are recording this via Skype. Yes, just like all the cool yeah. kids do. Now, usually, Sean and I meet and record sitting one next to another, but... To be quite frank, the weather in Israel right now is scorching, and none of us can afford to leave the house without melting, I believe. Or turning into Mr. Freeze. Like, if I could figure out how Victor Freeze does it, I would be okay with leaving the house. The, the cold suit? So, yeah. You know, work do- on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, we'll hope for the best, the best recording quality at least. And we'll head on straight to the news, right? Absolutely. And it has been a very eventful couple of weeks. I'd like to start with news that literally jumped to the top of the hour because, oh my god, what is this even? So, Bleeding Cool reported that, oi gewalt, Dave Sim is doing another Cerebus comic. Cerebus in hell? No, we're in hell, (laughs) is the thing. Let me rephrase, though. Because there's something a little amusing about this story. So, Rich Johnston was basically going on a Twitter rant... Uh, shaming other comic book news sites because they weren't reporting this big announcement that, you know, the controversial Dave Sim was going back to his legendary work. Mm-hmm. Johnston was interpreting that as a lapse on their part. I just think it was utter indifference because Dave Sim is one of those people it's not even fun to laugh at anymore. You just sort of shrug your shoulders and... Well, I, at this point, I, I'd say a lot of people feel mean laughing at Dave Sim. Uh, it's in okay. the September previews, by the way. Nobody reads the previews part of Artwork Venheim because for a long, long time, that company, Dave Sims Company, only published reprints of Cerebus and his other stuff. So nobody read it expecting to find something new. You read it to see if, I don't know, uh, Reads or Heights Sadie is coming back into print, which it does, usually. So I guess people just didn't notice. Oh, Cerebus in Hell number zero out of four. And it's $3.99. Well, okay. I won't say it's going to be good because odds are <laughs> no. But but we do live in the house that Davidson built vis-a-vis creator's rights and the idea that, you know, people can own their stuff and work independently. He was one of the most important voices in comics for that. And if there's a single example... Of the thin line between genius and crazy, it's Sim, right? Yeah, but my question is... Do which which also know? means that, you know, it's got to be crazy, but there will be a semblance of genius there. Because Dave Sim is nothing if not a formalistic mastermind. Yes, I just don't have the patience to hear him go on about the vaginal void again. I'm just, you know, I don't understand I think- why we need that. Well, I don't know if it's going to be about that. I assume he already said everything he had to say about the vaginal void, as it were, in his old Cerebus stuff. I'm going to give it a shot when it comes out. I'm I'm interested. I'm bomb curious. Okay, that's legit. I'm not going 
within 10 miles of it, but... Well, you know what? Let me know if there's something there that I can laugh at, at the very least. Other comics stuff? Go ahead. Something to laugh at, like DC Comics, for example. Oh my god. Our old nemesis. Okay, so the two big announcements from DC to September are A, Steve Orlando is going to do a Batman slash Detective Comics slash a Nightwing crossover. That's only three months into Rebirth. A writer not associated with one of these titles is taking over for a crossover. And B, several titles have announced feeling art, like uh, Super Sons and such. Yeah. Uh, that's not a good signal. Now, it can be okay on its own. You know, comic companies do crossovers all the damn time. Feeling art is a thing that happens. But only three months after starting your big experiment, your big push to just jump right into, okay, the artists aren't making up time and the double monthly uh, shipping schedule is killing them. It's not good. Can you really say that it's surprising, though? Surprising, no, because New 52 had the exact same thing, remember? Because they announced it and it came out. And the sales are huge, right? The sales on Rebirth are enormous. It's the best-selling Green Arrow we had, even including Kevin Smith, which you remember at the time was a huge deal, yeah. right? Yeah. So, sales are huge. So, first month only, it's a success. But the big question is, if, like the New 52, they're going to just jump into problems. They are, if they management are I mean, these are the problems, aren't they? Like, we're seeing here a situation where, like you said, three months into a line-wide reboot, regardless of the fact that, like, Jeff Johns doesn't call it a reboot, it's a reboot. Nobody's fooled. And, you know, so Steve Orlando, and we love Steve Orlando. Well, I love Steve Orlando. I don't know how you Well, I I really like Steve Orlando. This is a writer we like, but it is a writer we like who is interrupting ongoing stories on three different titles for the next two months, right? It's September and October, this crossover. Yeah. So, and the only reason that this crossover is even happening is to give King and, uh, who else is writing Batman? Snyder, I think. Or... Snyder is doing All Star, oh, oh, which King, they, King. which is not part of the crossover. Right, it's Tinian. Uh, Team Silly is doing Nightwing, right? Yeah, and Detective Comics is James Tinian. Oh, right, right, right. So these three writers could not keep up the twice monthly schedule. And in comes well, Steve Orlando, who's already well, working on Supergirl, by the way. Yeah, maybe they can, but I don't... Why do a crossover so early? Three months in, it's not... It's hardly the first storyline, right? How well, how could it be? Well, they're doing double shipping, so I guess what, three months, five issues. It could be the end of the first storyline, but just jumping straight into a crossover. Yeah. For titles that are, again, financially successful, it's not like Batman is going to need a boost three exactly. months in. You know, maybe maybe a year later... Sales can drop, but Batman is not going to need a boost in, by September. You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. Because it's it's not just frustrating for people who are... And remember, like I, this is exactly what I said would happen when we were talking about the prospect of Tom King writing Batman. I'm like, let them get to issue 12 without any complications, and maybe I'll <laughs> consider it. And here we are, issue 7, and it's a it's a crossover that's not even necessary for sales, because it's the... Two, I mean, Batman and Detective Comics, as far as I know, are the two most successful Batman books, like of all the Bat Family stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. And Nightwing is just coming off a very well praised run by King and Seeley, where, as far as I know, the sales were stable. Mm, yeah. So I, I just, uh, I, you know, DC never saw a bad idea that they didn't think, hey, let's do that. 
in much brighter comics news, uh, cartoonist and current Judge Dredd and Amazing Force writer Ulysses Farinas is now launching a new imprint. Mm-hmm. Buno? Buno? I'm assuming that it's Buno based on... I think it's Buno because... Yeah, because it's an Enya. It's a sub-imprint with, uh, who are they? Uh, Magnetic Press, yeah. which are usually doing like graphic albums European style. They did stuff like uh, Love the Tiger and Doom Boy and Mech. Nice stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's launching a sub-imprint whose job is to push diverse creators, starting with, well, his own work. And they've announced free titles for September, uh, something called Light, by a guy called uh, Rob Chem who, that was originally published in Tagalong in Philippines. Right. And two books by Ferenas and usual co-writer Eric Ferenas, including uh, Claudia and Rex, which will be drawn by an artist called Daniel Izari, who did some nice work on Prophet, on Brandon Graham's Prophet. And Ferenas' own metafictional Guardian Force design manual, which is... Sort of like, how does it work for, for the Power Rangers? <laughs> the preview art looks gorgeous because Aww. Farinas is a great artist, yeah. a very good writer, and now apparently he's going to be a pretty good publisher. So that's a triple crown, right? Think about this for a second, though. Like when I saw the press release, I was actually pretty excited because when you consider Farinas' role, as they stated, is that he's basically positioning himself as a curator of this line, which is kind of what he did for the artists in Amazing Forest. Oh, yeah. So amazing, amazing. Manage you know. talent. Yeah. I'm all for it. You know, I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Farinas is pretty much, by this point, one of my year's best exploding talents. I don't know, because he's not new. But I think 2016 is the year when we see him transforming from, oh, he's that guy, to, oh, he's that guy. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. And, you know, I hope this thing will succeed because it looks great, the projects look great, and Farinas looks like a great person. Mm-hmm. You know? I think it's going to be uh, really interesting. We should definitely check out some of their titles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, all of these things just went straight into my to-read list. Do you know what's not on my to-read list? What? So it turns out that the event previously known as Dead No More, the Spider-Man crossover, has been revealed to be the Clone Conspiracy. Now, I didn't have any interest in this crossover beforehand, but now that I know that it's clones, Dan Slott can go straight to hell, do not pass go, do not collect $200. And you know what? Let me just say this, because I was just like turning it over and over again in my mind. It would be different if, say, like over the last five years, there were enough positive examples you could point to of, you know, remakes of previous stories. Okay. Right? But think about this for a second. Now that, like, the initial shock and horror has passed, not a lot of people are really talking about Dark Knight 3. Onslaught Reborn came and went before Watchmen, like you said last episode, sank like a stone, right? Nobody even brings it into the conversation anymore. Secret Wars is really only relevant for the reboot rather than people saying, you know, wow, that was a great remake of the story and the Beyonder was back and da-da-da-da. So it seems to me that whenever we have these revivals of, like, stories that are infamous for how bad they were the first time around, the best case scenario is apathy. The worst case is like, you remember when they tried to bring back Age of Apocalypse as an ongoing and it tanked? Yeah. So what other awful things can Marvel mine? Are we looking at the revival of The Crossing? 
oh, I'm going to break your brain right now. They're probably, like, I know that Dan Slott, somewhere in the back of his lizard, dumbass mind, he's like, you know what I really want to do? I want to do Sins Past 2, where it no. turns out that not only did Gwen Stacy have sex with Norman Osborn, but on her way back, she had sex with J. Jonah Jameson, too. I really like Dan Slott's work most of the time, but I think that when it comes to Spider-Man, he did his time, right? He's been writing this character for, what, seven years now? Ever since Brand New Day? They're sacrificing goats to get rid of him, Tom, and it's not working. (laughs) Because he seems to be constantly building up and up and up, and one of the reasons people like Spider-Man, that he was, you know, the hero that could be you... And with all those, you know, spider versus and clone wars and it's too much, right? Yeah. It's, it's just too uh, much. I mean, I'm skeptical as to whether or not Slot has even really contributed to like the iconography of Spider-Man. Like what has he actually done? Because as far as I know, it's been like th- he tried to introduce uh, that character, Carly Cooper, who was this obnoxious love interest. I really liked Carly Cooper. Oh my what? god, she was so annoying. Oh my god. Uh, well, I, I disagree. I think he did a lot of good stories. What he contributed, I don't know. Because it's one of those things, when you look at it long term, what did anybody contribute after Romita and Ditko? In Spider-Man terms? I mean, I wasn't a yeah. fan of it, but I guess McFarlane... McFarlane did not contribute anything, though. Come on. Well, no, because Romito and Ditko were not the ones who had Peter Mary, Mary Jane. Yeah, but that contribution was deleted, so... <laughs> well, okay, but it was still... It lasted for long enough for, like, an entire generation of people to imprint on. Mm. Wasn't that James DeMatteis, though? It could have been. The wedding? It could have been. I think it was the early 80s, uh, the late 80s. Well, yeah, because DeMatteis also did uh, Craven's Last Hunt. Oh, yeah, that was good. Which people, I mean, set aside the fact that it's good, people remember Craven's Last Hunt. People still today talk about Brand New Day, and I think Brand New Day was a very good period for Spider-Man, but unlike today, Brand New Day was a rotating team of writers and artists, so you had uh, not only Slot, you had also Wade and uh, Emma Rios and, you know, a lot of good people. I'm not interested, and I guess if you're a fan of what Slot has been doing up until now, you're still in the yay team, but I'm, I'm just tired. How is he not tired? He likes the character. He's a fan, and sometimes that's the problem, right? It's not the solution, it's the problem. You're too much of a fan to let go. That's a good point. TV news? TV news, movie news, many, many moon news. So let's start. I have some casting announcement from the television arena. Okay, cast away. uh, Supergirl has announced two new additions to the cast. Tyler Hoechlin has been cast as Superman. Now, how can I put this in very direct and blunt terms? Tyler Hoechlin is a very attractive and handsome man, but his previous acting role was in MTV's Teen Wolf, which gives you an idea of where we're at in terms of acting capability. It gives me no idea whatsoever because I've never seen MTV's Teen Wolf. But if I tell you MTV, what are your expectations, Tom? They're probably Uh accurate. I don't know, is that like a reality show about no, no, no. actual Teen Wolves? No, it was a an attempt to do yet another Buffy ripoff with mm. acting that is so horrendous. Sounds fun. Yeah. I'm and gonna really, give it. when you think about it, who better to pair with a survivor of Glee? In other casting news for Supergirl, uh, Wonder Woman has been cast. 
That is, they've cast <laughs> the Wonder Woman, Linda Carter, within the show as the U.S. president. I'm with her. <laughs> I mean, look, the thing about Linda Carter, really, like, you have to give her kudos. She's been roped into DC projects before. I remember she did a guest stint on uh, Smallville for a little while. She was, uh, mm. I don't remember if she was Chloe's mom or Lois's mom, whatever, but she acquitted herself pretty well. Like, she does still have... Some real talent. She has presence, yeah. if nothing else. She, she always had it, and she always has it. She managed to look dignified wearing that awful, after all, 1970s Wonder Woman costume. And she was like, she was dignified yeah. in that camp off of a show. And even more so now. Like, I'm trying to imagine yeah. her as, like, president of the United States with, you know, the business mm-hmm. suits, the Oval Office. It works. It absolutely works. Now, if DC is smart, they will do an event in which Wonder Woman runs for presidency and wins. Actually, if DC is smart, <laughs> they'll reveal that Linda Carter's character is, in fact, Diana of Themyscira, and she's president of the United States anyway. But mm. Well, that's another company now. That's Who owns Supergirl right no, now? No, no, they moved to the CW. Oh, okay. So, oh, right, right. Yeah, ever since they made the network transfer, I guess now, I mean, it's strange that they cast Linda Carter because the CW is not known for casting anybody over 30. But well, she's she's a figure of authority. She's like she's the adult, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't get much more adult than the president of the United States, right? So yeah, I'll be honest with you. I was kind of torn here because when they said Tyler Hoagland, I'm like, no, it's enough of a problem that you're bringing Superman into Supergirl's story that never ends well for her. But then on the other hand, it's like so you have this really lousy actor and then like this pretty decent actor. I don't know if I want to watch this, I'll be honest. Well, I've never watched it before. I'm not going to start now, but it seems that fans of the show are enjoying it. The news that is. The consensus seems to be that it's been getting better over time. Mm. Uh, I guess we'll see. Okay, uh, movie news? Yes. Go ahead. Uh, well, there's been a whole bunch of casting announcements for Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, surprisingly diverse and eclectic cast, I have to say. We've got Hannibal Burris, Martin Starr... Zendaya, Logan Marshall Green, no names attached to any of these just yet. But the one mm. that got everyone excited is that Donald Glover will be in this film. And longtime readers may be aware of the fact that Donald Glover was the inspiration behind the creation of Miles Morales. And there was a talk about him playing a Miles Morales either in an animated movie. Well, he he, wait, he, wa- he, was. he was Miles Morales, right? Yeah. In the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon, he, he right? He voiced Miles Morales, absolutely. Mm. So it, yeah. now they have said that it would be a little weird for Glover to play Miles here. No, because he's I older. assume he's, he's going to be Robbie Robertson, one of the Robertson at least. He's kind of young for that, isn't he? You know, the, I don't know, the Bugles web editor or whatever. I guess. Now, diverse is important because Spider-Man's supporting cast, which should be noted, is one of the things that made Spider-Man such a popular character, right? Good superheroes are defined by good supporting cast. Spider-Man supporting cast for years have been diverse. And if you add in stuff from the Ultimate Spider-Man, like Kenny Kong or other characters that stuck up, you have the sense of kid living in a modern-day New York. Absolutely. And it's important, yeah, that it's not going to be sea of white people. I guess that the whole diversity issue in relation to the Marvel Cinematic Universe really took off with Civil War because people were incredibly well dispensed towards T'Challa because Chadwick Boseman was amazing in that role and yet the next film is Doctor Strange 
So mm-hmm. it's another white guy. Yeah, well, all the films are white guys until we'll finally get the, the, the Shala movie or the Captain Marvel movie, which has been announced, but they aren't out yet. So 10 years into this project before you'll even see a hint of a protagonist who's not a white dude. Right, but I do think, I think you're absolutely right. The, the mm. diversity in the supporting cast also goes a long way. Also, great cast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, actual movie announcements. Go for it. Lots of odd things. MGM have announced a purchase of J. Michael Straczynski's Rising Stars for a movie. Did he ever actually finish that? Oh, yeah, yeah. It ran for 24 issues and some specials, and it was done. Now, listeners might not remember that such a thing as Rising Star existed, <laughs> nor might they remember the terms as people excited about J. Michael Straczynski's comic book. <laughs> Uh, okay, here's the thing. Rising Stars, which was about the spontaneous appearance of 127 superhumans at the same day. Like, at the same day, there was this big event and 127 children born at the same time all had various degrees of superpowers. And as they grew up, they changed the world. It was one of those late 90s popular deconstructions of superheroes. You know, the post-Watchmen post thing. Yeah. Even post-Astro City, I would say. Uh, and it was very popular at the time. I've just got into comics, you know, into monthly comics and news sites just became a thing. And I remember reading like, oh, it's this amazing thing, which I've never read at the time, but people were excited, but then it was completely forgotten. Yeah. I don't remember seeing rising stars in print in any form. I don't remember it. It's Top Cow. It was originally Top Cow. So it's image. But you don't see the Rising Star omnibus, you know, flying off the shelves or people announcing we're doing Rising Stars and new trades or whatever. Nothing. It was popular and then it just vanished. Wasn't it an icon for a while? No, no, no. Uh, Straczynski's other stuff were an icon. Uh, He had Dream Police and such. Okay. I'll be honest. I don't... I mean, I've never read it, but my understanding was that the reason it hasn't really been talked about since its conclusion is because apparently it didn't end well. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I, fi- I I don't know if it say it didn't end well as much as its time has passed. It was so much of that moment in comics, right? Of we're taking superheroes seriously now, seriously, huh? Yeah. You hear? As opposed to what and we were doing beforehand. Less blood and guts and more, you know, wit and intelligence. But still, it's, it's trying to do too much. And again, not having read the whole thing, I've read a few issues years later. It's a Straczynski project with all the problems that it entails. Right. And, you know, the guy has his supporters, most of them people who grew up on Babylon 5, I assume. But I've never grew up on Babylon 5, and therefore I don't care. Well, between you, me, and the wall, Deep Space Nine was better, but that's a different conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, the question is, what are you going to do with it? Like, I don't think it's one movie is going to work. 24 issues is a lot of material. And knowing modern film companies' love of uh, the decompression, they're going to probably go for a trilogy, right? I would not be surprised unless it's an adaptation of, like, a specific character storyline. But then, I mean, I don't know. Is this even something... Who owns the rights then? Image? If they're holding... No, 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 no. It's it's Straczynski's stuff. Straczynski's stuff? Well... Yeah. He picked a hell of a time to come back, I guess. But um, good luck to him. I don't know. I don't... I can't say that I have any real interest in it, to be honest. Okay. In other comic book movie news, uh, the Hollywood Reporter reports <laughs> that San Andreas director Brad Python 
has signed up to do an adaptation of Malignant Men by Ellen Nelson and Pyotr Kowalski. That was a boom miniseries from about 2011 about a guy who has a cancerous tumor who discovered that it allows him to see and fight the supernatural. Huh. It's a decent idea. It's like, uh, what was it? Rom Space Knight? What? Rom Space Knight? Yeah. yeah. He was the only one who can see the hidden horrors among us, or uh, they live. You know what? It's they live. Oh, okay. That makes With sense. a tumor instead of sunglasses. It's going to be hard to give it to someone else. Remember the put on the glasses scene? Yeah. So we're like, <laughs> get the tumor. <sighs> hmm. I haven't read it, but uh, Ellen Nelson is a very good writer. You remember, we both like tax. Yeah. And Peter Kowalski is a very good artist, so, you know, odds are it was a pretty good idea. Let's see if I can track it down online. Mm, yeah. I don't know. It sounds like something they snatched up more based on, oh, it's a cool concept, other than, well, people really like that character because nobody's talking about Malignant Men. 2011 was right before Boom has gained the identity that it has today, right? Mm-hmm. The people who do usually the kid-friendly stuff. Well, the kid-friendly stuff in the four-issue miniseries, right? Yeah, yeah. That was a four-issue mini, but it's definitely not a kid-friendly. You know, yeah. you don't do... You don't bring in Kowalski and Nelson to do kid-friendly. I have to wonder if maybe that is the start of a new trend at Boom. Because when you think about it, the four-issue miniseries is, a, I think, a much better model for an adaptation than... Oh, yeah, like yeah, Rising certainly. Rising Stars that goes on for, like, two years. Yeah. Well, 24 issues over, I think, six years or something. Oh, right, right, Straczynski. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. I will definitely try to see the... Maybe Comixology has a miniseries? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Then, they, uh, I, ch- I checked. Okay. Now, Brad Payson, again, did San Andreas, which is not a good movie. But not, it's like, it's what it is, right? It's a disaster movie done yeah. competently, He's, I guess. He seems like the kind of person who, if you were to give him a script or like the comics themselves and just be like, do that, just like color within the lines and, mm. you know, just do it. I think he, he could pull that off. Okay, more movie news, because, again, we are swamped. Go for it. Uh, New Line Cinema have began developing The Kitchen as a movie. Um, the Vertigo 8-issue mini about mob wives in Hell's Kitchen in the 1970s. We actually reviewed the first issue a long while back. Hmm. hmm. I, recent, I just recently actually sat and read the whole thing. It doesn't hold after up, not, it? No, it's not a very good... The idea is good. You read it and you see, oh, oh, I see what you're doing there. But the actual performance of it, mm, ah, the characters didn't hold up. And all the interesting stuff were basically skipped over. Yeah, the protagonist at some point has like this down spiral into violent insanity or something. And it's like, uh, that sort of came out of nowhere. Yeah. But it's a decent idea. Again, it's something that I can see being transformed into, I thought, more of a TV show. Because this... This kind of idea, this long, you know, long-term development and taking over sounds like a miniseries more than a one, I don't know, one hour, two hour movie. Think about it. If your starting point is stereotypical imagery of the Irish mob, right? So Mm -hmm. like in the first five minutes of the movie, you could just set up that like, okay, so there were the husbands and they got arrested and they got sent to jail. And then like for the next two hours, you're basically watching these women take over the Irish gangs, right? And then turn up on each other, yeah. right? No director yet announced. The screenwriter for right now is Andrea Berloff. He did Straight Outta Compton. Uh, um, hmm. The end, yeah, the NWA movie, which I've watched and 
was a decent movie. Um, the Kitchen. I might actually enjoy it more as a movie than as a miniseries because I think. That- well, again, I didn't like the comic, so enjoying yeah, it more as a movie is not that a big part. No, no, I'm thinking like in a more part of the problem with the comic book. I think might have been exactly that it went on for too long. If it had been a little more compressed, maybe five issues instead of eight. The plot wouldn't have, like, sagged in the middle, where it's just, like, Kath going into her own brain and all that. That might work out. Okay. So, that's it. Any more movie news? Well, mm, not so much news as a false alarm that momentarily spiked my blood pressure in a good way. So, at Denver Comic Con this year, uh, I think it was two, three weeks ago, our dear, dear Carl Urban, who we both appreciate so much, was quoted as saying that Dread 2 was in development. Or at the very least, that there was active work on the story. Like, a, there was an actual script in the process. And the next day, he tweeted that it was all a big misunderstanding and that we're not actually any closer to Dread 2. Carl, why couldn't you just let us have the hope... You know, and this was right after Anton Yelchin died, so I'm not even mad at him because he's probably, like, in a different headspace. But I really would like Dread 2. Uh, you know, the movie didn't make enough money. Well, apparently... There's no, there's no the con, you know... This is interesting. What they said at the con, apparently, was that it's true that cinematically the sales weren't great. But apparently, word of mouth really did a number on Dread's DVD sales. Like, apparently, it did really well in the DVD market. I don't know if that's good for anything. I don't know if that... I mean, it's still money. There is still a meter of success beyond theatrical release. I just don't know if that's enough, because... Well, no, because if it's been enough, they've been going at it right now. It's been four years now? Three years? Independence Day is getting a sequel. We can wait. It'll be fine. Well, Independence Day, remember, came from a time in which sequels weren't as common as they are now. Yeah, but like there are so many movies you can make a sequel to before you get to Independence Day. Well, it was very successful, so... Yeah. Well, well. That's all the news I've got. Have you got anything else? No. Shall we go on to previews? Yes, previews! Uh, Marvel. Anything from Marvel still stuck in Civil 2, War 1, Go 2, whatever. Daylight, come back, I want to go home. Well, minus one, actually. Rocket, Raccoon, and Groot got roped into a vent, so per my policy, that's another book I'm preemptively dropping. Uh, One for me, that's from the Marvel's strange, strange policy of issuing non-graphic novels, you know, just regular novels based on the characters. Doctor Strange, The Fate of Dream prose novel. It's a prose novel about Doctor Strange written by, <clears throat> get this, Devin Grayson. Oh, no. Devin Grayson. Oh, no. Shh. Guess who's back? No, 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 no. Back no. again. Devin Grayson's biggest contribution to the world of tie-in novels is that she wrote that one Smallville book when the show was at the very, very beginning depicting Clark and Lex in a hot tub together. I Mm. appreciate the desire to do things differently, but no. No, 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 no. For a certain generation of fans, Devin Grayson is still, you know, it's the twinkle in the eyes. Oh, we really liked her. She basically led uh, Nightwings in the mid-90s, was it? And you could tell because he got raped. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that 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 scene was terrible. And she did, what was it, The Agency? The only thing that I ever liked of hers was a three-part Vertigo series called User. Oh, oh, right. She did User. The Agency was someone else. It was heavy-handed, but it was 
pretty yeah. good. I think, you know, it's funny. She might be one of those creators who might have been a little bit ahead of her time and suffered for it. Because today, there would be an interest in a female writer who likes to look at particular established characters and say, okay, let's do things differently with them. Like a lot of... Who the- came who came from the Fennish side. Yeah. Very much so. Oh, yeah. I've read some of her uh, fan fiction. Really? Uh, yes. It's, um... I mean, not too many surprises. She likes the idea of Batman and Robin together. And I'm like, okay, that's valid. You know, people could be into that. That's That's okay. But once she actually got to the professional level, it was just sort of like... I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, again. We just talked about slot, right? Yeah. The idea that you probably need to be a fan, but when you become the writer of a character, there need to be some sort of distancing of understanding what am I doing outside of the bad thing about fan fiction. Not all fan fiction. I'm talking about the general idea is that it's all about satisfying the writer's own cravings. This is what I want to see and read. It can be. There have been arguments made by critics like Henry Jenkins, for example, where they're saying, why is there such a huge propagation, for example, of slash fiction, right? Of of same-sex romance between characters who are canonically straight. It's because when, you know, that is a gap that exists in the source material, right? If there are no same-sex relationships, Mm -hmm. then there is a desire to express that you know, through fan fiction. And that's fine. That's like completely legit. I get it. It's it's an understandable impulse to be like, here's the stuff that we don't get to see. Right here are the dynamics that aren't usually explored. Totally legit. When you take that into the realm of adaptations or, you know, direct work, this is why I say like, you know, she 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 turned up at the wrong time. Because today I think, you know, there's a more postmodern sensibility like she could do a four issue miniseries at image or boom about a guy who calls himself Ratman and his sidekick bobbin and they're getting it on and i think people would be like yeah we get it it's fine for her to write a novel about dr strange i just don't i don't get it she never did that great work with licensed characters in an official capacity Okay, so that's Marvel. Anything from DC? Uh, there are a few things from DC. Uh, although I do just want to point out like another minus at Marvel that sort of strikes home. Howard the Duck has been cancelled. Has it? It has. I never noticed. Oh. So. Are, are we talking cancelled or like Marvel quote-unquote cancelled in which it will be relaunched with a new number one in two weeks' no, time? No, no, no. This time they mean it. Probably because oh. the book was selling around 17,000... It was under the cancellation threshold and everybody knew it. Chip Starsky has tweeted that he's got more Marvel work incoming, which I guess is good for him, you know. What keeps him over the red line and allows him to do more stuff like set criminals and Jagged? Fine by me. That's fine. Joke's on them. So DC. Tom, you're not going to believe this. I actually okay. have something nice to say about DC. Yes. Don't get too used to it because this was, again, Mm. in the same solicitations as Steve Orlando crossover. The Young Animal imprint has finally made its debut. Well, it will finally in the future. Yeah, well, it's turned up in the previews. This is Doom Patrol number one, written by Gerard Way, art by Nick Darrington. And I think, I mean, we've said all there is to say about it when the announcement came out. It's a perfect fit for Way based on his past work on Umbrella Academy. It's very Grant Morrison-ish the way they 
publicize it. The atoms are buzzing. The daydreams crown the sentient streets and the creative team has been warned. Turn back now or suffer the mighty consequences of sheer psychomaniacal mayhem. With tree-like reptile erections. If you do Postmars and Doom Patrol, you sort of gotta do it. Do you? You gotta serve your ego a bit, I'd say. I don't think that's true because... You know, you can publish a new Doom Patrol and be like, oh, it's gonna be a nice series, feel off nice people. You gotta be like, yes, it's gonna be grand and enormous and I'm gonna change the whole of comicdom. Am I misremembering that Rachel Pollock's run was sort of understated? Well, yeah, and nobody really remembers Pollock's run, you know, with all the respect. Yeah, I mean, she had the misfortune of coming immediately after Morrison. Immediately after. Morrison on Doom Patrol is, like, more after Swamp Thing, in which everybody else who came on the series... And, you know, there have been a lot of talent doing relaunches and reruns on Doom Patrol. He's basically wearing a sign saying, I am not Grant Morrison. Yeah. Kick me. Kick me hard. Yeah, but I think that Way could take it in a in a different direction, and... This is really more of a hope on my part, but I think Wei might also be just high profile enough that Didio might not be willing to screw with him. Like, this is not someone who is, who needs the industry or who relies on his work in comics financially. This is a, like a big time rock singer, whatever the hell he does. I don't know. But what was it? My Chemical Romance? Yeah. That's the one. Okay. So, you know, he's, uh, celebrity, I guess, is is the term. I don't know if he's that popular anymore as a musician, but, you know, this is someone who's coming into the field. Maybe not the kind of person that you want to start, like, changing scripts and bringing in fill-in authors and fill-in crossovers and have him do this. I feel like maybe Doom Patrol and the other Young Animal books might be safe from that. Or at least I hope so. Okay, in other Vertigo, well, not Vertigo news, sorry. You remember when Fables ended? I was... Forever and, <laughs> forever and ever, and then, like, one month later, we had Fables the Wolf Among Us? I was long well, by then, so I can't help you. So now we have Ever After, from the pages of Fables number one, written by Matthew Sturgis and Dave Justice, with art by Travis Moore, and this is indeed... The sequel to Fables, this is the, at the end of the series, which, like you have stopped reading long before it ended, the mundane world finally recognized the existence of magic, and so now the series is about a network of agents, both Fables and Mundane, who are tasked to, like, help keep the peace in this new enchanted world. God, and you know what the sad thing is? I I don't think it's sad. It's a little sad. Sturgis is actually a good writer. And he wrote Fable Spinners before, right? He wrote the Cinderella yeah, one? but I can't help feeling like this might be helping the case with doomsayers of Vertigo, right? The fact that they're trying to go back to Fables. I mm. mean, it didn't work when the Dreaming tried it with Sandman, right? Like, there's a point where you're saying you had this great release, but the whole point of Vertigo is that when these big epic titles are done, you're supposed to be able to move on to the next one. Well, Lucifer worked. Who's talking about Holly Black's, though? Lucifer's well, back okay. now, and it's not like anyone's talking about it, anybody's reading it, I don't know. Uh, speaking of uh, Vertigo, Frostbite number 1, written by Joshua Williamson with art by Jason Sean Alexander, and I look at the solicits, it's Snowfall. Isn't it, though? It, it looks like the plot of Snowfall. We reviewed, what was it, Image? Yeah, it was an, an Image, image series. Oh, no, I think it, it might have been, been Boom. 
Well, it was a mini, so we, we tend to think it was boom. I think it was actually Image. We reviewed issue number one, and it was pretty terrible. Yeah, we were not fans. Uh, now, uh, Joshua Williamson is a pretty decent art, uh, writer. Uh, I really like Nailbiter. Is he the author of uh, Descender? No, not Descender, sorry. That's just... No, no. Uh, Birthright. No. Yeah, yeah, we really like Birthright also. Oh, so, well, there you go. I, I guess I'll be well, looking into it. Yeah, even though, again, the plot doesn't seem that promising. It's a post-apocalyptic frozen earth and roving gangs and uh, treatment and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I guess all that really proves is it really does come down to the execution. Like, you can have a somewhat conventional, familiar, maybe overly familiar generic setup, but if the writer has enough style and pizzazz, you know, they can they can do something with it. I think Snowfall didn't. Snowfall didn't really have anything to offer beyond the high concept, but I think Williamson might. From the useless reprints department, Absolute Infinite Crisis, hardcover, written by Jeff Johns, art by Phil Jimenez, George Paris, Ivan Rice, Jerry Orderay, and Joe Bennett. Now, these are a lot of good artists wasted on terrible plots. I need your help here, because I'm sitting here, and for the life of me... I don't know if Infinite Crisis was the one where Gene uh, Loring got raped. The, no, the no, no, that's... Uh, Darkseid by singing into a karaoke machine? No, Superman beat Darkseid by singing into a karaoke machine in Final Crisis. So which one was Infinite Crisis? It was the one where Superboy punches reality. Oh, when he punches the walls. Okay. Yeah, and, you know... It was yet another attempt by Jeff Johns to... Turn over the darkness that have descended over the DC Universe by bringing in darkness into the DC Universe. This was the famous <laughs> Superboy lopping off people's hands and beating them bloody. Because Silver Age, folks! The light and the magic! You know that there's this classic clip of I Love Lucy when she and Ethel go to work at the chocolate factory? Mm-hmm. And they're sitting like in the lineup and then it's just going too fast and Lucy at some point says, I think we're fighting a losing battle here because the chocolates are just piling up and they don't have time to... Very comedic. You can probably find it on YouTube. This... Jeff Johns is like, if he was in that sequence, but his job was to like break glasses with a hammer, he'd be like, I can't cause enough of a mess quickly enough. It's not working. Also, DC Rebirth Omnibus. <laughs> this is an omnibus... Have 500 pages that collects all the Rebirth specials. Okay, so wait, these were the ones that came before the number ones, right? Yeah, so it's basically a collection of issue zeros. Why? For dog's sakes, why? People will buy it. I mean, that's... Do you need a brick? Because bricks are cheap. You, You don't need to pay $75 for a brick. It's a really, really expensive primer for a bunch of titles that I promise you, by the time the omnibus is actually published, most of them mm. will have been canceled. Quoth uh, Paul O'Brien, as usual, is your table wobbly? <laughs> well, take care of it now. Now, there are a bunch of new titles in this. Mm. I guess it's the second wave of Rebirth at this point, three months in. I don't yeah. know what, what kind of wave. Re-Rebirth, <sighs> as it were. So, Keith Giffen is back on Blue Beetle. Uh, as we mentioned, Steve Orlando is writing Supergirl. Marv Wolfman is writing Raven, for those of us who like the moldy oldies. Same deal as with Jin Wen Yang. These are titles that I would normally be curious about at the very least. Uh, I do not trust DC. Hmm. One other item from Vertigo. Yeah? 
I'm tired, Tom. I'm so tired. The second American Vampire Anthology has been resolicited again. Look, now Snyder's just being mean. Before we were like, yeah, he's busy, we understand, it's fine, we got hooked on this really good series, and I guess we can wait a little while while he's working on the next arc, even though he ended on a cliffhanger. It's okay. You can't put out an anthology on time with, like, a bunch of different artists. Really? Really, Scott? Really? Maybe just let it die. I don't know anymore. I love American Vampire, but you're... Well, it's undead, so it can't really go away. Put a stake in its heart. You'd be surprised how many vampires die in that book. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, I don't understand what's going on here. This is an anthology that has nothing to do with the ongoing storyline, which was itself rebooted. Right? They had that whole second cycle thing where the second arc got into ridiculous delays again. And I'm pretty sure there have been episodes of previews where I've been sitting here and being like, well, American Vampire was delayed again. Well, American Vampire got delayed again. And now, like, even the special anthology that you put out once every five or something years to remind people that this work exists, even that gets delayed. Ugh. And it's odd because, as we've talked before, the thing that usually differentiated Vertigo from Image over the last few years was that Vertigo was on time, right? <laughs> they, they were the people that published the creator-owned material that was still a genre work on time, month after month. Apparently not. What, not well, with Scott Snyder. I have to wonder if maybe part of the issue is just that in most other cases with Vertigo, right, the reason that they are on time is because they tended to publish works by authors who were not doing a whole lot of other projects simultaneously, right? When we're talking about, like, mm. timely releases. Scott Snyder, I get it. The guy's been writing Batman for, like, 500 years. I don't even know if Witches is still on the docket. I know that it's supposed to come back. I don't know what the deal is over there. He's probably writing something else that I don't know about. Some Maybe, maybe there's going to be a crossover. American Witches? I could go for that. Mm. Do it. I find myself channeling Shia LaBeouf at this point. Do it! Just do it! Image. Please, image. Now, I'm going to start uh, not with a number one, though, as usual, there are many new number ones. I'm going to start with a trade collection. Go for it. Kill Six Billion Demons, ah, book one. As soon as I saw that title, so, I'm like, yeah. Tom is going to bring this uh, first. Well-liked webcomic about lady being sucked into a very, very strange hellscape of demons and monsters and fallen angels. And Dante meets Hellboy meets uh, the Siddhartha and what have you is now coming to print. Uh, the first book is 104 pages, $15. I really like Six Billion Demons, but it's a bothered read on the screen because it's a very, unlike most webcomics, it's super detailed artwork. So you sort of need it. You need it to be on a big page. Yeah. So I love it. And the most interesting thing to me is that up until now, the creator has only been identified by his screen name. He was Abaddon, and he never even showed his face. But because it's a print book, they have to—they actually have to show him. Kill six billion demons have been written by Tom Parkinson Morgan. Another Tom. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Right next to Tom King and Tom Scioli, some of my favorite people in the industry are Toms. Oh. Uh, anyway, it's a great book. If you haven't read it yet, go just you know Google six billion demons and just look at it. Stunning artwork. This, uh, it, this book deserves your money and your time and your eyeballs. I'll admit that the story lost me early on. I, I am planning to give it another read at some point. 
Uh, your turn? Surgeon X number one by Sarah Kenny and John Watkiss. Not that any of that matters because, and I feel so <laughs> bad for this team because it's going to be known as the Karen Berger book. That's just what it is, right? This is the yeah. book that a uh, former Vertigo leader, Karen Berger, has come to image in order to edit. It's a very strange premise about this sort of antibiotic apocalypse. I'm not sure mm. what that means, but... This is a book that's going to have eyes on it no matter what, because a lot of people were curious about what Karen Berger was bringing to the table, and I think that she could do amazing things at Image. I don't. I have no idea who Kenny and Watkins are, <laughs> but uh, I feel like I'm. Kenny is apparently a filmmaker. They, they they don't mention comic book credits. She did a movie called Angels and Ghosts. And Watkiss did some some Conan work, some Deadman work. I have no idea. I literally have no idea. It's worth checking out. Uh, Eclipse number one. This Mm -hmm. is by Zachary Kaplan and Giovanni Timpano. Again, new names. I don't... These names do not ring any bells for me. But I did think the premise was a little interesting. Uh, The sun has started scorching the earth and basically killing anybody who makes contact with it. So everyone's living in these nocturnal, possibly underground cities, and there's a serial killer who is using sunlight as his weapon. That's new. I I don't think I've seen that before. Again, like, another number one that has me intrigued. I'm gonna go for a number three. Go for it. Red One Number Three, written by Xavier Dawson and drawn by Terry and Rachel Dodson. <laughs> Issue number two came out April 2015. Yeah. One year plus. Although, if we're being completely fair, Tom, you will agree with me that that's not even the craziest delay that comics have seen. Issue number three. Did you even read the first two? Yeah, they're not great, but they're okay. Uh, do you remember the basic idea of the series? Uh, something about like a Russian spy who... She poses as a superhero to... She's the red one. She's the new American superhero. And she's supposed to like slowly sway the mind of the American public to be like more pro-communist. It all took place in the 1970s. While taking cheesecake poses courtesy of the Dotsons. Well, it's one of those things that works because the idea is that, yeah, she's the attractive face of communism. Literally. And it was a very good-looking book. It, this was the kind of book you want the Dodsons to draw, because this is the whole point of it. Right. The cheesecake become part of the theme of it. Yeah, that's fair. I do think that, like, non-player, maybe it's the sort of thing that you should wait for a trade. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, they actually did a trade for the first two issues. because the, That was... Yeah, because the first two were mini-storyline, and they were, like, 40 pages each, so they were long enough. No, they were not. 80-page trade? I don't think so. Glitter Bond number one. This is hmm, by yeah, that's interesting. Jim Zub and Jibril Morissette Fan with art by K. Michael Russell. The thing that leapt out at me here, I distinctly remember this being announced at the last Image Expo. Yeah. Which means that the pace between announcement and release is finally starting to pick up a little bit. Uh, what's the plot? Uh, Demons in Hollywood, apparently. <laughs> it wasn't entirely clear on the solicitations. A middle-aged actress is hunting for the next gig in an industry where youth and prompts experience. Which is true to life. Demons, maybe not so much. But you know what? Zub is a good writer, even though I will admit that a lot of the things he's written in the indie field haven't always appealed to me. Like, Skull Kickers was nice, but um, I'd be lying if I said that I stuck around for too long. Because it's like, yeah, you get the joke at some point. 
I really like Skalky because Wayward was good but decompressed as hell. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm I'm willing to look at it from the perspective uh. of Zub can do interesting things. Uh, the Wiccan and the Divine 1831 one-shot. That's a Kieran Gillen writing and Stephanie Hans drawing. And this is a story of the previous incarnation of the Gods of Pop right. as romantic poets in the 19th century, which is interesting. And I really like the things that the Wiccan and Divine are doing right now. They're mentioning right now in the previews that this one-shot will not be collected in the fourth Wicked and Divine trade, which is coming out the same month. So probably in the fifth? Either in the fifth or it's not going to be collected. No, I don't think... I think they're going to do... Mm. Um, it, the same thing happened with uh, Rat Queens. The Braga special wasn't collected into the second volume, which came out around the same time, but the third. Now, I read this in collection, so I should be for it being collected, but there is something to be said if, if this is just a one-shot, you know, expanding the universe, not contributing directly to the plot... Of giving something to the monthly readers, I'd say. Because you want to support them. But this is still Gillen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, listen, I mean, based on what I know of Gillen as a writer, it's hard for me to believe that there's just going to be a one-shot and it's going to be disposable. He tends to work things into, like, larger arcs. True, true, true. She changed comics. Oh, yeah, this yeah. This is a book that was advanced solicited for October... Uh, it profiles over 60 women in the mainstream comics industry with interviews with uh, Raina Telemeyer, Noelle Stevenson, G. Willow Wilson, and more. Title evokes she makes comics, but I don't think they're related. No, uh, I, it's just I sort don't of think a, so, other than... Yeah, and also all proceeds go to the CBLDF, which is, as usual, support the CBLDF and support women in comics. I like that they're taking the approach of you know, these are the women who have been here. You know, yeah. they there have been women in mainstream properties as far back as, you know, Anne Nascenti, Louise Simonson. Like, they have been part of the formative fabric of what we know today as DC and Marvel. They've always been there. So if this book shines a spotlight on them and reminds everyone, then all the better. Hadrian's Wall, number one of eight, written by Kyle Iggins and Alex Siegel, with art by Rod Race. This will not be a Vertigo without a number one about murder in space. Image, you mean? Yeah. So when an astronaut on Hadrian's Wall is murdered, pill-popping detective Simon Moore is dispatched to investigate the ship's crew, including his own ex-wife. Murder in space. Oh, and you know what? I would... I, I'd give it, like, a, a shot, but I really don't like Kyle Higgins. Well, I don't hate I him, but him, I just... But I ne- Yeah, I never connected to his work. I can't think of a single book he's ever written that I was like, you know what, I want more of this. So, I, it's an eight-issue miniseries, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. So, uh, whatever. Not for me. Anything else from Image? Nope. Dark Horse? Dark Horse. What have you got? Alistair and Adolf Hardcover... A graphic novel written by Douglas Rushkoff and drawn by Michael Avon Oming about uh, Alistair Crowley developing a connection with... Developing a weapon to help fight the excess powers. So, see, the title led me to believe that this was like an automatic loss of Godwin's Law, but I guess <laughs> it isn't then. Okay, I like Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, media criticism. He's usually guy who writes, you know, nonfiction work about media theory and stuff like that. He's a very big fan of Grant Morrison and vice versa. But he 
wrote another graphic novel years before. You remember ADD from Vertigo? ADB? Yes, ADD. No. It was terrible. That's probably so... why I don't remember it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's kind of, it's more like a warning than a recommendation, I guess. Michael Avenoming, good artist, but really 96 pages for $20 for a book by a guy whose previous comic work was less than promising. Well, uh, see, now I'm trying to remember what was Michael Avenoming doing, like, recently. Because Powers, I think, has been on hiatus, right? Powers is always on hiatus. Yeah, and he did the Victories, but the Victories was a mini series. Oh, no, that was years ago. Wasn't he? He just did something. He had that. He had that mice uh, Templar thing, the mice guard competition yeah, thing. Yeah, but I think that's been on hiatus too. <laughs> I don't know, this isn't someone who I, I'm poor. Poor even though I don't know if it's just like his bad luck to be paired with writers who tend to be a little late, or if it's just that his art, because his art is relatively simplistic in terms of style. It's hard for me to believe that he's the cause of the delays, but oh well. Anything else? Nothing from Dark Horse. Oh, okay. So, what's your next company? IDW. Oh, oh, oh yes. Oh, oh yes. Oh, brother. So, Revolution Number One. Oi. Written by Colin Bunn and John Barber. Art by Fico Osio. IDW, I guess, looked at Marvel and DC and said, "You know, let's do that." And so we have a universe cross, a universe spanning crossover in which the participants are as follows. Transformers, G.I. Joe, Action Man, Mask, Rom, and Micronauts. This sounds like the description of like a 10 year old's toy box that has been jumbled around and spilled on the floor. Mm. I don't know what any of this is and I want no part of it. And see, if Tom Scioli were writing and drawing this, I would be like, oh, but it's Colin Gunn. So I'm like, mm, I don't think he's that connected to his inner child. No, and he doesn't also have, I mean, I don't necessarily connect to the way that Scioli does things, but I can certainly acknowledge that his priority is telling fun stories, right? This is not someone who spends his days being like, so this is going to be this really awesome fight scene and a Transformer is probably going to die or something, and it's going to be, like, really dramatic. That's sort of what you get with Bun. Okay. Now, on its face, I don't mind because IDW had crossovers before. They had the whole, uh, what was it, Infestation, and then uh, Mars Attacks IDW and whatever. But the big thing about the Revolution crossover is that it takes the ongoing titles, right? Specifically, my longtime favorite Transformers, More Than Meets the Eye, and forcefully brings them into this universe. In fact, I was going to ask you if you had any final words for More Than Meets the Eye. Well, James Roberts, the writer of More Than Meets the Eye, went on Twitter saying that not to worry. He did a long series of tweets about, yeah, it's a thing, but I, they still let me do my own thing, and I'm going to keep on with my own plans. Now, Transformers More Than Meets the Eye ends with issue 57, and is then relaunched for what he called a new season. Okay, so this is a reboot, basically. Well, he's not a reboot. The continuity stays the ah. same. It's just, it's an attempt to do like a jumping on point, Marvel style, which I'm going to keep with Transformers more than meets the eye because at this point I'm, I'm bound to it. Okay. 
Unless he does something really horrible, which I don't believe. But well, listen, mm. if he's gone sixty issues or almost sixty issues without t- making yeah. a step, and you're still loyal to it, I'd say you're good to go. Uh, yeah, but I just why? Why? Because you know, Transformers and GI Joe have crossover fans. Are there really that many Action Man, Mask, and Rom fans? Just waiting to jump in into the IDW cauldron. And, and that want them all in the same place. Like Transformers and G.I. Joe, I can sort of understand. They, it makes sense. They've been tied together pretty much since birth. Yeah, but uh, really? Action Man, I don't think, has even made it to like 12 issues. Like it hasn't even been around for a year. Action Man issue 1 came out this week. Right. Now, it already is a part of a universe because I've read Action Man issue 1. It's not terrible. It's not great. Uh, they've mentioned they're like, oh, we're doing our own things, but we're not like these Joes in the U.S. Hasbro shared universe. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if that's the direction that they want to go with, I mean, it sucks for people who have been coming to IDW to get away from the crossover nonsense. But on the other hand, if, you know, books like More Than Meets the Eye are allowed to continue afterwards, I guess, you know, it just is what it is. Okay, one more thing from IDW for me, and this is a weird one. Jingle Bells, the whole package. Did you repeat that? Di- Jingle Bell, the whole package. Did you say bell? Re- is this word spelled B-E-L-L-E? God yes. damn it, IDW. Written by Paul Dini. With art by Joseph Garibaldi, Jay Bone, Stephanie DiStefano, and Stephanie Galden. This is a collection of... Early comedy material written and drawn by Paul Dini. Jingle Bell, though. Jingle Bell, really? <laughs> really? About a uh, wintry elf and her madcap comedy. Well, it, it's Paul Dini, so yeah, what, what do you expect? Uh, well, early Dini, man. Early I'm, Dini. I'm game. I'm game. Yeah, you're right. Early Dini. Um, Jay Bone, always great. He is. One other item of interest from IDW... So, mm-hmm. with gem number 19, it's been confirmed, unfortunately, that Sophie Campbell has left the book. I don't think this was officially announced. I, it just sort of, like, popped. Could it be just another half a year no, break? No, no. Because she took one when no, she, for the second she arc. She went on Twitter and said, basically, uh, she's out. I, I, I don't Aww. know why. Um, but there is somewhat of a silver lining. Uh, the artist replacing her is Meredith McLaren. Now, McLaren isn't Campbell. No, no. There are two things working in her favor here. First of all, according to the solicitation text, this storyline is introducing the sort of Euro-trash third band into the ongoing rivalry between the Misfits and the Holograms. So mm-hmm. that's a situation in which like, you have a new band with a new kind of style coming in. So there's a justification for the art change. It also helps that, according to the preview pages, like based from what I saw, she's different, but still visually... Appealing. Visually very <laughs> appealing. It's never going to be as she, wild and yeah. crazy and imaginative as Campbell could get. But I think... Now, she worked with Kelly Thompson on that miniseries, yes, right? Hard in a yes. Box? I didn't really like that. I wasn't a fan of the story, but I did think that the art in Heart of the Box was okay. Mm. Like you, it it was very appealing on a panel-to-panel basis, but the actual page structures felt a bit chaotic to me. Kelly Thompson really is someone who has come a significant distance since her earlier days because Jem doesn't really have the kind of script problems 
and pacing problems that Hard in a Box did. She's been avoiding that so far, and I don't know if that's because Campbell was... No, no, because the second gem arc was also good, and that was uh, Emma Vichelli. Right. So I think it's going to be okay. It, it is sort of a, an unfortunate loss because, you know, so much of what makes this book stand out was Campbell's original designs. But on the other hand, this probably means that she's heading somewhere else. You know, there's going to be another Campbell book turning up somewhere. Also, on the good side, it's not part of the IDW <laughs> revolution. <laughs> Can you imagine Jam versus the Transformers? I'm so mad, Tom. I, first of all, I mean, I would drop Jam. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. You know what? Now that I think about it, I want to no, see like Soundwave, you know, joining the Misfits. Please, please, for the love of Glob, do not put that into the universe. I don't need it. I don't want it. Let it be, you know, just let it exist on its own. Let us have, like, a minimum amount of books that don't require reading other books. Intertextuality is fine. It should not be mandated. Uh, anything else from IDW? No. I'm gonna jump into Black Mask. Right, go for it. Uh, they have something called Black Number One written by Kwanza Osajifu and drawn by Jamal Igel. And the idea is that in this, this is an alternate world take in which only black people have superpowers, but the truth has been kept hidden from them, Uh-oh. so they didn't know that. Hmm. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. It's one of those things where it could be great. It could be really insightful and interesting. It could, it could be a train wreck, right? Could, uh, there are so many ways this can go. <laughs> Well, first of all, you know the racists are going to come out of the woodwork and make this book a target. Oh, oh. You know. Well, yeah, yeah. It's called Black. Oh, yeah. They would have come out of the woodworks if it would have been about, I don't know, a guy giving gifts to yeah, children. All the, so, vermin, you know, the, the, the vermin be coming the, the, up the, out of the woodwork. But that's, that's like a separate issue. You see, the specter that's always hanging over my head here, when it comes to projects that specifically make a point of discussing through allegory racial politics, racial stereotypes, etc., is that much like representations of homosexuality when we talked about, you know, the outing of Iceman and, and stuff like that, these things work best, and they really do work best with a deft touch. You know, you have to have some kind of sophistication in the way that you're presenting it. Because if you don't, you end up with something like Reginald Hudlin's Black Panther. Uh. Exactly. Or, to use a more recent example, I know you're not following Civil War, uh, neither am I, but I have seen pages from the latest casualty who was Rhodey, War Machine, got killed off. Oh, right. But here's the interesting thing. There's a scene, and this is written by Brian Michael White, 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 Bendis. Okay. A scene in which Sam Wilson, as Captain America, walks into a room at the funeral house and is confronted by uh, Monica Rambeau, Storm, Luke Cage. You see where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, yeah. they call themselves Rhodey's family. And I'm sitting there going, I don't think, (sighs) I don't think James Rhodes, War Machine, has ever shared a scene or, like, a line of dialogue with Storm of the X-Men? Not that I can recall. Okay, now, again, this was Brian Michael Bendis. Kwanzaa, Osajifu, and Jamal Igel are not white, 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 as it were. I'm just saying... And they are not working within the confines 
of a shared universe, which is a whole different set of limitations and problems. It's an uphill struggle, I agree, but I think it's an interesting idea, and I'm in it. The, the only problem that I have with it is that Black Mask as a publisher has been very unprofessional with its release schedule. Because, you know, four kids uh, walking to a bank, number one, came in, and I was oh, it's great, when does issue two coming out? And they're like, we don't know. Someday. Yeah, because they solicited issue number five for September, but issue two hasn't come <laughs> out yet, so I have no idea. And I really like Black Mask stuff most of the time, but get hold of yourself. Image can do that, because Image have huge creators who can do whatever they want, and people will be there. People will wait forever for Scott Snyder, they won't wait forever for Jamal Eigel. With, with all the respect for Jamal Eigel, a very good I artist. I also think that with Image, at the very least, you tend to believe them when they say that the book will be back. It might take longer than they think. I recently finished the, the first talk of Monstrous, right? So it says issue yeah. seven coming in, like, I don't know, December. And it'll probably be late. Let's be honest. It's not going to be December, maybe January. It tends to give you the feeling that unless the creator has pulled the plug themselves or sales have been so catastrophic that you really can't justify it, that next issue will come. I don't think Black Mask have that yet. They don't have that sense of security of, like, you can trust them. Yeah, and, well, usually they only do, like, limited series. They do, like, four or five issue runs and that's it. The only thing that has been with the sequel is... They've announced a sequel to Space Riders, but that's like season two, and the first storyline was a storyline by itself. Okay. I hope so it works I out. I don't know. Do you have anything else from Black Mask? Uh, Forevers, number one, written by Kurt Pierce with art by Eric Pfeiffer, and uh, it's Highlander. Five friends struggling on the brink of stardom sacrifice everything for a black magic pack that brings them all the wealth and glamour they ever want. And a year later, when one of them dies, they discover the power is now divided amongst them. So it's, Highla- it's Highlander with satanic rites. Which really, I mean, what, what is decapitation if not <laughs> satanic rite? You know, the <laughs> distinction isn't that different. Well, since there hasn't been a good Highlander since the first one, <laughs> you know, somebody can take the concept and run with it. And, you know, Kurt Pierce, why not? He, he's good. Sure. Anything else from Black Mask? Nope. Okay, I've got uh, I've got four titles from four different developers. Mm-hmm. So let's just take it like one at a time. So Oni. Okay. Uh, Knights Dominion number one by Ted Nyfe. I have a. I I, I knew that you would do that. You knew, of course you do. I mean, look, I loved Princess Ugg. I enjoyed Courtney Cormoran a lot. I'm still waiting for more UG, actually, so the, the announcement of like a new one going, I'm like, ugh, Ted, you really can only do one thing at a time. But whatever, it's his prerogative. So this is a dark fantasy series that, even in the solicitation text, is pretty clear that it's trying to muscle in on the void that Rat Queens has left, now that Curtis J. Weeby is off realigning his chakras or whatever. Uh, sure, I'll take it. Okay. Dark, dark fantasy with a sense of humor... We do not have enough of those. Anything else? No, not from Oni. Do you have anything from Oni? Nope. Anything from Boom? Uh, no, most of the Boom titles that I saw were just continuations of things that are, we've already talked about. So yeah. nothing new that I noticed. Dynamite. Oh. Nothing to point out, just sort of like a sad fact. All three of the female-led relaunch titles are gone. Ow. Damn. September, there's no Deja Thoris, no Red Sonia, no Vampirella. Maybe it's a it's a break or it's announced finished? I, 
I don't. There has been so much misinformation. Uh, Red Sonia was originally solicited as an ongoing, then it was a miniseries. Uh, Deja Thoris was solicited as a miniseries, then it was an ongoing, and I think it's a miniseries again. It's been very unclear. The arcs themselves seem to be concluding, so at least there's that. Like, there will be, presumably, trade collections of just those stories, but I'm pretty upset that none of these stuck. Yeah, shame. It had so much going for it and so much talent, but this market is our curse. There's no other word for it. Anything else? Not from Dynamite, but Valiant had something that piqued our interest. Okay. Did you see it? No. Okay. Do you have anything else from solicitations? Uh, actually, I, I just noticed something in Boom. Go for it. Uh, Mouse Guard, The Legends of the Guard box set. This is a collection of all three anthology uh, graphic novels from the Mouse Guard universe. It's $60 for free books in a big, nice slip box case with writers like David Peterson, Scotty Young, Destin Nugent, Becky Cloonan, Carl Kershaw, with art by, again, Young, Nugent, Cloonan, uh, Mark Buckingham, Bill Willingham, on art. Ooh. That's been a while. And you know, Mouse Guard is always good. It is. It's one of those things. And it's all and it's spectacularly good looking, you know, trades and such. Yeah. If you don't own it, go for yeah. it. Okay, well I have two other points of interest uh from two different companies. So in Valiant. Mm-hmm. Britannia number one. This is a four issue miniseries by Peter Milligan. <laughs> art by Juan Jose Reap. Now, I'll be honest with you. After the discipline there was a moment where I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm over Milligan. Finally, maybe it's just like time to stop. This is a miniseries about a detective in ancient Rome, specifically during Nero's reign of the Roman Empire. So, you know, there was all kinds of unnatural nonsense going on over there. Unusual for a premise. I'm sort of curious. Okay. I'm willing to give it a shot. And one other point of interest from Archie Comics, Marguerite Bennett and Cameron Diordio are launching Josie and the Pussycats, art by Audrey Mock. Now, again, like Josie and the Pussycats is one of those things where, like Archie, like Jughead, to a very large extent, like Sabrina, uh, not really that, like, very difficult to take it seriously, but I do think that with Bennett, there's at least a chance that it'll be interesting well, the Archie relaunch has been great, so... It has been. If they maintain that level, then I'm all for it. I'm not sure... Part of the problem with RG Comics is that it's very difficult to tell which books are part of the relaunch and which are not. Because, like, for example, this week saw the release of uh, First Issue of Life with Kevin. Yeah. And I'm reading it. It's not great. But it's also very unclear as to whether or not this... Because the art style is the old art style. Oh. So I don't... Like, is this a reboot? Is this part of the old... uh, How is Archie Comics having continuity (laughs) issues? How are we having parallel timelines and alternate universes in Archie? Okay, (laughs) I've just just noticed one more thing, actually. Uh, 2000 AD. 2000. I'm, I'm tired and confused. 2080-2000 out in September. Yes. Wow. 2,000 issues, no relaunch. It's finally here. And they're going to do 2,081 uh, after that, you think? Probably, but have you no. seen that lineup? Yeah, okay, so we've got uh, Dread Story, a one-off by mm-hmm. Wagner and a Square, because 
You got it, right? Who else? Uh, Nemesis the Warlock and Turkamada with Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill. Naturally, also. Mm-hmm. Anderson, Side Judge, Grant and Roach. That's like the bit, all the big classics. Uh, Sinister Dexter with Abnett and Sexton. Woo-wee. Yeah, people really like that. I, I really should get into that. Uh, too. It's one of the last 2000 AD strips that I just never had time to start collecting. Uh, Rogue Trooper, Ghosts of New Earth by Gordon Rennie and Richard Elson. And since you've mentioned Milligan, he has a new, uh, a new serial with, uh, Rufus Daglo called Counterfeit Girl. Hey, that's worth a look. Yeah. 40, just 48 pages. You know, it's not like huge, giant sized anything. No, but, but I, did, but AD, yeah, 2000 AD can do it with the short numbers, right? Yeah. If 2000 AD is to be known for anything other than the fact that they launched the careers of like some of the greatest writers in the British invasions. If, if they're British and you like them, they've probably worked for 2000 AD yeah. in one time or another. But I think that maybe the thing that they don't get enough credit for is that they really did know how to tell five-page stories yeah, or fi- five-page parts in ongoing stories. Yeah, I, this year was for me my 2000 AD year. I just really got into it, you know, the old Dread stuff. And a lot of the other stuff, like, I'm just now finally reading Nemesis. And it's so much fun reading 2008. It's just, yeah. you know, the joy of it, the thrill of it, as they would say it. So it's so incredibly lively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these different kinds of futures and the art always. This is a book that allowed creators to take risks. You know, and sometimes it paid off and sometimes it didn't. I mean, everybody knows that Pat Mills sort of went a little crazy at some point. Oh, yeah, and, and you know, spa- Space Girls, Blair 5, for God's sure. sake. Sure, oh, what was the name of um, Tyranny Jones? Uh, Tyranny Rex, no? Tyranny Rex. Was yeah. it Tyranny Rex? I don't know, I don't whoever know. it was. It was this girl with a dinosaur tail who spends an entire story sitting around with Prince, who only speaks in what was then, I guess, emoticons. Mark Miller <laughs> trying to be edgy with Big Dave, yeah. Yeah, that we didn't need so much. But, you know... So 2000 AD still going strong. Long may it rain. Yeah. So for uh, 1000 issues more, we'll meet in 3000 AD. Sure. Uh, shall we go on to the reviews? Let's. Uh, start with She-Wolf. Sure. Let's go into it. Uh, She-Wolf number one, written and drawn by Rich Tommaso, published from Image. And this is a serial horror... Uh, surreal, not serial. Well, it's also serial, but it's both. Yeah, it's a surreal, surreal horror story about a teenage girl called Gabrielle who believes she was attacked by a werewolf and keeps having vision of either herself transformed or seeing sort of horrible things popping around her. But as far as everybody else in, in her, you know, mundane life is concerned, she's just going crazy after some undescribed incident in which a boy was killed. Well, I think the boy was her boyfriend specifically yeah. because yeah. she tries to communicate with him and that doesn't quite go well for her. For, now, it's by Rich Tommaso. We reviewed, what was it? Dark Corridor number one, right? Yeah. To be completely honest, uh, I found myself having very similar problems this time. Well, we, you really liked Dark Corridor number one. You didn't like the series when it ended, but when we talked yeah. about number one, you were a big booster for that. I was. The first issue held up really well. When I read the first arc, though, some problems very quickly became apparent. Okay. And I recognize the same problems here. Like, something that Tommaso has a great deal of trouble with is world building. And as a consequence of that, very often there are scenes in the story that just don't make any sense or their significance is very difficult to grasp. For example, 
in this issue, there are at least two instances in which, right, Gabby has been attacked by presumably a werewolf, right? Yeah. There are two scenes in which she transforms in public, in full view of people, and nobody seems to find this strange. She uh, the, the, she goes to the beach, and this dog is barking at her, and she physically changes, right? Like, she's covered in fur, she has fangs, and she's snarling at this dog, scared away. And people go up to her, and it's like, oh, you scared the dog. Yeah, so f- for, so as far as we know, this is all, like, nightmare realism, yeah, right? It, Nothing seems... actually happens, she just believes that it happens. N- well, that's one way to look, look at, at it. Look at it, yeah. But the other way is, like people seem strangely accepting of the notion that there are werewolves. Uh, Because also, like, don't forget, the particular scene in the beach might be uh, some kind of weird, freaky nightmare because she does have some very strange dreams in this issue. Okay. But when her boyfriend is killed, the cops who shoot him see him turn from a wolf to a human being. Yeah. And nobody comments on that. The impression is... Is the problem with Gabby that she barked at the dog and not that she's a werewolf? But at the same time, nobody ever says the word werewolf. Like, nobody acknowledge what she's turning into. So it's like, I don't understand what is this world's... Like, what are the rules of this world? What, See, what's the position? And for me, that's not a problem because I don't read it as bad world building. I read it as intentionally obtuse. We're supposed to not understand what's going on because this is one of those... You know, teenagers not finding their place in the world stories in which the idea that she doesn't really realize what's happening and people are treating her as, oh, you're a monster, is literalized in her eyes, not necessarily in the eyes of the world. And I think for this kind of story, at least for issue one, the dream logic approach that Tommaso is taking here, that she doesn't know what's going on and we as the readers don't know exactly what type of world are we living in because issue two could actually reveal that yeah you know it's a werewolf world and everybody's used to it yeah it could have been just like oh you got turned into a werewolf that's so sad yeah or again it could be all nightmares and mirrors so issue two three whatever should have some answers but issue one for me actually works in making me curious and i want to read more and I would say this, Tommaso is such a great artist because this is completely unlike Dark Order, right? Because Dark Order was all like exact, small, meticulated panels and, you know, people and faces in action. This is all like very freewheeling dealing. Yeah. Everything is more expressive-like and especially with the color work, which is very, very stark looking. It's all very basic. Mm-hmm. Intentionally so. I really like this, you know? Uh, I just feel like... I'm ready for something expressive like this. Oh, sure. The sense that I get sometimes with books like this, or uh, you remember The Empty Zone, you know, same problems. Mm. Sometimes... I, I, I actually like, thought more like, uh, what was the Morrison uh, Burnham one? Nameless. Nameless. It's, oh, it's, pretty, it's pretty much like the first issue of yeah. Nameless, which yeah. I really liked and you really hated. Yeah. And I think that the reason that we disagree on this is because you said like you're willing to tolerate the dream logic. Oh, I love dream logic. Based on the assumption that it is a stylistic, deliberate choice that the author is using. And this just could be, like, the cynic in me talking, right? But, like, sometimes I feel like reliance on this kind of dream logic where, supposedly, the point is that there's no point because you don't know and nothing's clear and we don't know and how can we ever know? Sometimes it feels like more a shortcut than a stylistic choice. A a crutch, yeah. Yeah, like, rather than trying to go the distance and actually show us 
who Gabby is in this world, what is actually going on, what are the stakes, why are we invested in her, what do we actually know about her, rather than go to any of these things, the author chooses to go for, like, to be completely opaque and abstract and weird, taking the position of, ooh, it's dream logic, it doesn't have to make sense. No, 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 I'm not saying it doesn't have to make sense all the time. It doesn't have to make sense on the first issue, and it doesn't have to make sense... Plot-wise, it does have to make sense emotional-wise. And I think that this issue does work in an emotional level. Because you can have just, again, Empty Zone. The problem was that the confusion of the plot didn't relate to anything in the confusion of the character. Or even worse, what was the one we refused to review? Because we read it like three um, times. And ooh, Ray Fox. Uh, yeah. Intersect. Intersect. Yeah, we read the, I read the first issue three times. And I, <laughs> I literally had no idea what's... What's going on? It was just a series of blurring images. Yeah, and I feel... See, this is exactly the problem. Like, it is very difficult sometimes to tell whether a writer is doing... Like, whether there is an actual point that will be made at some point and that this will be clarified, or if it is something like Ray Fox's Intersect where you're reading it and you're just like, okay, not only do I not understand what you're talking about, I don't even know how to discuss this. Like, I don't know what you're doing, and I have the sneaking suspicion that you don't either. I've, I'd say Tommaso knows what he's doing. Fair enough. I will not be coming back for more. If the trade ends up having some kind of, I don't know, redeeming quality, and it turns out that no, he actually knew what he was doing all along, I might reconsider, but I just... Like the use of this kind of dream logic in this particular way is the sort of thing that gets me skeptical right at the start. Which is why it, it tends to be like those kinds of approaches, and I think I'm usually pretty consistent about this like in terms of reviews, is usually in the first issue the sort of thing that shuts me out. Because mm. I'm just like, I don't have the patience to spend the next four months piecing together your crazy quilt of dream logic, and maybe it'll pay off and maybe it won't. Like When it pays off, come back and find me. Otherwise, I just don't have time for it. Okay. She will f- disagree, I guess. All right. You sticking around? I'm sticking around, yeah. Okay. Uh, Weird Detective? Weird Detective. This is by Fred Van Lente and Gio Villanova from Dark Horse. Now, this, and not published in the solicitation, the first half of this issue, at least, is collected from Dark Horse Presents. I remember reading the first half of this story. The second half might as well have been also published in Dark Horse Presents, but I've stopped reading at the time, so I wouldn't know. And the I solicitation did... No, because I think we discussed it when the solicits for this came out. And I was like, oh, a new weird detective. Wait, is it the same stuff? And you're like, I don't know, because you haven't read it. Right. But I don't know. It might have been mentioned in an interview or something that I read. Because I didn't know, sort of like in an abstract way, back in my head, going into this, that at least part of it was a reprint. Yeah, it's a reprint from uh, Dark Horse Presents, which ran it in, like, I think, seven or ten page chunks. I can see that. Which you can see that because the issue is very much like stop, go, stop, go. And there are so many... This is a 48-page one... uh, Not one of the first of a five-issue mini. And you can see where there are chapter breaks. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely true. But at the same time, the sort of story that's being told here actually does work with, like, Mm. chapter breaks within an issue. Yeah, now, the good thing about the chapter break structure is that... There's actual plot going on here. It's not one of those <laughs> first issue where you wait until the end of the issue to get one reveal. By the end of the issue, you had like five reveals about the world and the character and the characters around him. Yeah. 
Can I just say, like, as a starting point here, so this is, I mean, as the title implies, this is a weird detective story. Yeah. But can I just say how refreshing it is that Van Lente doesn't really play the asshole detective card? No, he's he's not an asshole. He's not like, he is smarter than you, but he doesn't care enough about you to make a point out of it. Yes, but not in like the sociopathic way, the way that Benedict Cumberbatch plays Sherlock. Yeah. You know, not like someone who is abrasive on purpose or rude and then dismisses it as being like, oh, you know, he's socially anxious. Uh, And we we should talk about the plot. The idea is that there's a series of murders in New York, was it, right? I think so, yeah. And called onto the scene is Detective Sebastian Green from Canada. He's Canadian, you know, (laughs) who up until recently was the most average detective ever but two months before the series started he developed these amazing intuitions and became the world's greatest detective mm-hmm. and so they throw all that we're everything weird and unsolvable they throw at him and he tends to solve it yeah but there is a secret to the how and why's which we discover like seven pages in yeah well no we discovered what one page in because he reveals that he's not human basically well, there are levels to the reveal itself, yeah. I think. Like, yeah, it, yeah so, we're not going to spoil everything. No, 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 naturally. I'm not going to say what it is. But I will say, because it's that good. But I will say that, uh, like, from the very first page, uh, he makes it clear that he has certain superhuman abilities that are not superhero. Like, you know, it, it's more science fictional. And he has all of these extra senses, and they let him do all of these different things. He's partnered with this new lady cop who has been instructed to keep an eye on him and they're investigating all of these weird crimes while at the same time green has his own special mission on earth yeah and a very considerable one at that now have you noticed the opening quote oh who is it from uh the most merciful thing in the world i think is the ability of the mind to correlate all of its contents now the original quote is the most Awful thing in the world, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the mind to correlate all of its content, and that's H.P. Lovecraft, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's like, he removed like two letters and made it (laughs) a completely different story, because the idea is that something strange is going on, but instead of not knowing it, Green is super aware of it. He's super aware of everything around him. And the nice thing here is that usually in stories like this with weird detectives, when they have these abilities, much like Mystery Girl, which we talked about, yeah. um, it becomes sort of an exercise in suspending disbelief as to if they have all of these great intuitions, how have they not solved the central problem that they're dealing with here? Yeah. And what really works, like Van Lente, I have to give it to him, he came up with... On, the, on a narrative level, like a convenient explanation, but also one that makes a lot of sense as to why his intuitions don't really help him with the task that he has to complete. Like, he's dealing with something that is so beyond his capabilities that, you know, the fact that he can do all of these things and, and figure out, you know, all of these hidden intentions or whatever doesn't really have any particular tactical use for him and i love that i love well i don't i don't i think the idea is that it has its uses and you know his job on average is part of a longer effort sure but it's not something that he can directly apply to solve the mystery right like there's no murder in a locked room here that the detective with all the answers somehow doesn't know how to answer now there are problems with the issue some of them are small like the locker room scene in the showers uh-huh. Where he uses his super intuition to discover the world's most obvious hidden camera. 
it's like, ah, using my superpowers, I have discovered that you, the proprietor, have been taking pictures of young boys. Yeah, and I'm like, like, the camera is right there. It's glowing red. I think that might have been like an art glitch on Villanova's part because yeah. the, the, the script, the dialogue says, like, Green points to a corner on the ceiling and says, that hidden camera. And his partner says, what camera? But there's like an actual mall security <laughs> camera yeah. stuck on the ceiling that would be staring down directly at these boys showering. And it's like, well... Yeah. And that probably was an error in translation or and, something. And again, the bigger problem is the odd scheduling publication nature, which made it... You know, reading it in one issue is a bit like... One, two, three, five, go. One, two, three, five, go. Because they keep stopping and starting, stopping and starting. It helps advance the plot faster, I agree, and I like it, but either it feels like something that either should have been just bumped directly into trade, again, 2000 AD style, or, you know, refought and, like, republished in a single issue. Because as it is, I don't know, the rhythm of it, a bit choppy for me. See, I, I did not have that problem at all, because... From the very beginning, it's making you aware of the fact that they're playing according to mm. some variation or derivation of the old noir tropes. So you would expect chapter breaks in pretty much the same places that they happen, right? Like, there's a cutaway point where the two lovers are murdered, right? And that scene comes immediately after an interaction between Green and his partner. And it's like, okay, I see, like, it's a scene switch. It's the sort of thing that would have happened in a noir novel anyway. So I did feel like I was, it was flowing pretty well for me. Okay, so there, there is one point that I really appreciated here. First of okay. all, let me, let, let me just shout out, like, as an aside, uh, Villanova has the ability to be both subtle and overt with the weirdness, which I love. Like, there's a scene where Green is being introduced to, like, the other cops in the precinct when he's coming in. Yeah. And he takes a look at the woman who's been assigned to him, and he's like... Mm, I don't, you know, I'm not sure what her intentions are, whatever. And there's this one panel, apropos of nothing, that nobody else naturally notices, in which a third eye just, like, opens up in the middle of his forehead, and nobody responds. <laughs> it's just like, hello, Sana, I happen to have a third eye, and I'm looking at your aura right now. And I, I found that funny. Like, I really did find that amusing in terms of the quick panel hit of here's something really bizarre and weird and then the next panel it's gone the thing that i want to give van lente particular props for and this was actually in the solicitation so i'm not considering mm. it a spoiler there's a lovecraft angle here yeah yeah right okay it's actually in before in the flip of the issue you you can see that like the shadow of lovesome horror from beyond space and time yeah I mean, they've mentioned not, it in the issue they're not being subtle about it and that's that's okay uh, the thing that I really like here is that for all that Lovecraft tends to be a very popular go-to for, like, anyone who wants to do cosmic horror, right? Yeah. So many attempts to use the old gods tend to veer to making them too obscure, right? The whole reason Lovecraft's original mythos is scary is because he tells you just enough that you know you're supposed to be scared of these things, right? Cthulhu and, and all of those. It's very often... They're just like, oh, there's this horrible, shadowy, cosmic, formless force, whatever. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Here, I do have to give it to Van Lente that he makes it very clear what Green is up against. Like, when you say old gods, what is it specifically that you're referring to? And what are you 
what is it that's coming? Why is he concerned? What is he out for? And because Green is not human, it changes. When you do humans versus Cthulhu thing, it's either, you know, either the humans lose, in which case it's, you know, it's regular Lovecraft, or humans win, in which case it's pointless, right? Yeah, Yeah. you kind of disappoint. By, By making the actual protagonist not human and representing something else, something opposing... Well, yeah. now it's interesting again, it's right? Brilliant. Because the humans are stuck in the middle. Well, not brilliant, but it's interesting, I'd say. I mean, I say it's brilliant because I can't think of a situation where, you know, the the age-old schism between humans and old gods had a different angle to it, right? Like a, a third party coming in. Well, I guess Hellboy. Hellboy isn't exactly Cthulhu, right? Oh, oh, Hellboy, Hellboy, Hellboy. is very Cthulhu-ish. But, you know, you have the seventh... Right. Demons that leave behind the gate and blah but blah. That, see the the pro, like you're talking about Ogru Jihad, but the Ogru Jihad are not the old gods of Lovecraft, right? Because they're more connected to demonology in Mignola's uh, view, at least, right? Mm. The whole idea of you know the dragon that created the world, and the, they were more. I think they were more Lovecraftian in the films, actually. Where like you really do just see this sort of like giant eye hidden in crystal. Okay. In the in the comics, I think they were more, you know, like, something more like Tiamat or, you know, like, mythological demons. This is like, you know, I mean, it's Cthulhu is in, he's here, right? Yeah. So, when it comes to using Lovecraft's characters specifically, I think that it is brilliant to sort of say, yes, we know that in the Lovecraftian view, if you so much as look at an old god, you go crazy, Right. Okay. Or or you commit suicide or or like horrible things. They're capable of doing terrible things to you just by existing. And then saying, okay, so let's not put the humans in the position of like, let's bring someone else in to take care of it. I like that. I don't know. I think it's an, a, an inventive approach to it. And I really mm. like this issue. Okay. Fair. So, you, so you're sticking. Yeah. I'm going to wait for the trade, I think. Awesome. And so our last number one is Tales from the Dark Side, number one uh, from IDW, uh, written by Joe Hill with art guy Gabriel Rodriguez. These, this is the team that, of course, did Lock and Key. Yes. Now, Sean, explain to our listeners what is Tales from the Dark Side, what it was, and what it is. Okay. So for perspective's sake, listeners, you need to know that The words you're about to hear are coming from a 33-year-old recalling his 11-year-old self. Tales from the Dark Side was sort of a light horror attempt to, you know, do the, the Twilight Zone again, basically. Yeah. I distinctly remember it being secondary to Tales from the Crypt when I was growing up. Wow. A second-rate Tales from the Crypt. However... In retrospect, I'm willing to concede that that might be unfair because a lot of the fondness that I have for Tales from the Crypt, in retrospect, having gone back and watched that show again, came from John Kassir as the Crypt Keeper. Oh, by the way, who who was the host of uh, Tales from the Dark Side? You've got to have like a big host, right? I, actually, I don't think that, not that I can recall. I don't remember there ever being like a host proper. What was the one Henry Rowling hosted? Night Gallery? Dark visions, I, visions of blackness. Sounds about right. Yeah. There were so many of those series when yeah, I was growing there was up. A, there was a point in time, like in the late 80s, early 90s, you had Alfred Hitchcock Presents doing like uh, reruns also at the same time on Dick at Night. Uh, there was a period where like, you know, 
it was the coolest thing in the world to be watching, like, HBO in the middle of the night and Tales from the Crypt was coming on. There's sort of, like, a lot of nostalgic attachment. I do realize now, though, that it was more that John Kassir's Crypt Keeper was really, really funny. <laughs> and the stories themselves were sort of these outdated morality plays. Yep. So, in comparison, like, I would say, okay, maybe Tales from the Dark Side isn't secondary, per se. It just didn't have that kind of hilarious, uh, creepy puppet making really, really funny and really, really bad puns. Anyway, so apparently Joe Hill was meant to write for a revival of Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah, they actually the filmed TV show. a pilot. They, oh. they filmed a pilot of uh, Tales from the Dark Side, the remake. And uh, they shipped it around to a couple of networks, including, horrifyingly, the CW. But, alas, it was to no avail. The remake failed to find a network. And here we are with a four-issue miniseries containing, on the one hand, four self-contained horror stories. But also, according to Hill, uh, there's going to be some kind of connection between these four. This one specifically is called The Sleepwalker. And the story is about... Well... Here's the thing. I actually thought that this was a very good story, but it's not exactly horror. There's this kid called Ziggy who makes this terrible mistake. He's serving as a a lifeguard. He falls asleep on the job. A woman drowns and, you know, her husband is horrified. Ziggy is repentant, but there's no sense that he did something like explicitly wrong. He just fell asleep. You know, human flaw. Well, And the universe decides to punish him in a very strange way, which is that anyone who sees his face immediately falls asleep. Now, at the same time, he's trying to reconnect with his childhood friend Maddie, and uh, because they both went to drama camp together, so he puts on this Shakespeare mask that manages to block his newfound ability. But the husband wants to take revenge. Yeah, the husband wants revenge. He's completely devastated by the fact that Ziggy gets off at, at the trial, Uh, He's found not guilty, all of which leads to a climax that is tragic, sure. Horror, though? Not so much. I didn't feel like... There's a a Twilight Zoney right, sense of poetic justice thing, which Rod Sterling loved his poetic justice, didn't he? he? But is this poetic justice? Because what ends up happening... I mean, I guess for context, we have to sort of, like, mention at least part of the ending, is that he ends up having to do what he could have done the first time, right? Like, he, he commits an act of repentance and sacrifice, etc. I don't know that that's poetic justice, though, though, because it has nothing to do with his reason for failing the first time. Well, the falling asleep thing is presented as being part of his personality of just cruising through life, right? This is somebody who had an easy job, an easy life, and the idea is that he let that girl, Maddie, he let her go the first time simply because he could, he didn't care enough to actually try to be with her. He was just, again, sleepwalking through life, taking things as they came and not caring. So the idea is, well, you don't care, we're gonna see. We're going to show you what happens. So I how does, I do think that the logic works. I, again, it's not really scary. It's not. But also, like, I, the stumbling block that I'm having here is how are people falling asleep at the sight of him a punishment that relates in any direct way to what he actually did? Like, his biggest fault is not caring enough to... Like, basically being lazy. Right? Yeah. So other people fall asleep, and then they wake up as soon as he's gone. So it's not like any permanent damage is done. 
And he, like, the worst thing that happens to him is that he has to wear this ridiculous Shakespeare mask, right? But it's, it's one of those poetic justice things that work as a word. Well, again, it works better as a wordplay because, you know, sleepwalking, sleepwalking through life, other, rather than working in actual story terms. It's a pun. You remember there's this famous, uh, horror story that was done by both The Outer Limits. And the Twilight Zone about the guy who, uh, you know, time enough at last, the guy who really wants to read. Yeah. But, and only has time when the entire world ends. But then, uh oh, his glasses break. He can't read anything. And you're sort of like, why was he punished? What did he do wrong? Well, no, that's more of a situation, I think, of like dark humor and irony. But again, I don't know, like, where is the irony specifically in here? Because the fact that all these other people are falling asleep, doesn't have any kind of impact on them. First of all, it's not like he's inadvertently punishing other people. He himself is also not really being punished because as soon as he puts the mask on... Well, you, don't, you, you, you can't really, you know, survive your whole life wearing a Shakespeare no, mask. No, but it's, it's the fact that he immediately finds a convenient solution, right? Like, to put it a different way, right? If this were Tales from the Crypt and it was a story about a guy who was so lazy that he keeps falling asleep... It would end with him falling asleep somewhere like, I don't know, at a funeral home and being buried alive. <laughs> that, 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 that's a bit too much, I'd say. But, but like that is the sort of situational irony and black humor that I thought Hill was going for. And it's not. like it, It's tragic, certainly, because, you know, he ends up having this moment of, you know, redemption at the very end for like doing this thing and and finally taking action, inadvertently taking someone else down with him when he didn't mean to. But I don't know. Part of the problem might be that it's not exactly clear how this happens to him. There's references to a dark side event. Yeah. Which is not to be confused with Batman's future flashes in Batman v Superman or the dark side war or final crisis. It is a dark side event. I'm assuming that's the common thread. Yeah. But I don't know. I just, I'm curious and I am going to stick around, but this was not horror. Uh, I'm not, I've never been the biggest Joe Hill fan because I read his work and I'm like, yeah, I see why people like him, but I myself am just like, "Mm, yeah, it's okay-ish. I've read the first two volumes, I, I think, of Lock and Key. And I've read Horns, and I've read some of his short stories, but I'm like, mm, it's okay. I was never impressed. Uh, Rodriguez is a very good artist. I, I'd yeah. say that, you know, it's nothing mind-blowing, but, you know, it's got very good fundamentals and page layout and the acting of the characters, because the guy is just enough of a douche to, you know, be like, oh, it's one of those guys, you know, the jocks who have things easy, but he's not a complete asshole. Um... Yeah, I guess. I mean... Yeah. The, it's like, it strikes the good character work balance, I'd say. Yeah, but it's, all, it's also very ordinary. Like, there's no real supernatural event that has to be drawn here, right? Like, it's pretty much just people walking around, falling asleep where they're standing, and then, like, the big car chase at the end. That's that's about it. Yeah. You know, the the advantage of this being an anthology series is, well, maybe the next one will hit. But this was kind of a... It was just like very strange and incongruous in terms of... Yeah, if, if, you, really want, if you really want to see Hill doing his horror anthology thing in comics, just buy the Shadow Show mini that he did a few years back. Yeah, or Lock and Key or like Nos 42. Yeah. But he's, he's doing horror. It's not that he's not. Yeah. This just seems like it was mismarketed. 
So, uh, shall we end with our petited trade review? Let's. Main course. What did we get? Uh, Buffy, colon, the high school years, freaks and geeks. Yes. Thank God they didn't call it Buffy the Vampire Slayer, colon, the high school years, dash, freaks and geeks. We'll be here all week. Yeah. Uh, this is written by Faith Herring Hicks, with art by Yishan Lee, and published, of course, by Dark Horse. Uh, this is the first in line of their new... Series of uh, one-shots and graphic novels which bring back the Buffy comics to the first two seasons of the TV show. Mm-hmm. And the plot here, the big plot, is that this Ooh. takes place, I think, during season one, I'd say. Yes. Like, really early stuff. Uh, for those who know your Buffy lore, it's still really just Buffy, Willow, Xander, and Giles. Cordelia yeah. is still not part of the gang. She's and... only just met Angel. Yeah. And the idea is that a group of uh, loser vampires, that is, four vampires who are losers in life and are still losers in afterlife, try to kill the Slayer, and by doing so, they're not very good at it, inadvertently bring back repressed notions of Buffy of, oh, I used to be popular, but now I'm hanging with the loser crew. But instead of it being about uh, her building a distance from them and trying to re- integrate herself with the cheerleaders which what you what you would have expected from this plot is about how she's afraid that Willow and Xander will leave her just as her old friends left her when she became the Slayer right Uh, so what do you think of this book I thought it was good but very slight Mm. Uh, which in terms of size it's like it's 88 pages but you know taking off all the you know, the alternate covers and the pre-material and the afterword and what have you. It's like 80 pages. It is yeah. less than four issues of comics. And it feels like a filling arc in an earlier Buffy story, right? Oh, um, no, it does not. Really? I, I have something to say about that. But uh, keep going. What else did you think? I really liked the writing. I didn't really like the art. But I, I felt it didn't just, it didn't have enough of a place and time to develop its ideas because there is something interesting there. There is something to the idea that uh, what, sh- what Buffy is afraid of as a former, you know, the popular kid now is part of the losers. It's not about losing her popularity. Is that what if they discover that I am one of those cliche blonde cheerleaders? Will they leave me too? And that the vampires she's fighting are not a physical threat. Well, there's like, there's like a battle towards the end which is meant to be like the set piece, but it's not really the issue. The issue is they uh, bring down her confidence, not because of what they do, but because of what they represent. Right. Okay. Okay. Oh, boy. All right. So I really don't want to do this. Listeners will remember that I first discovered Faith Aaron Hicks through her webcomic Demonology 101. Yep. Uh, which was very strongly influenced by Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Very overt, you know, borrowing themes, borrowing particular plot structures. And it was a really great story. And at the time when this book was announced, I was actually really happy that she got to work on Buffy herself. And also that because of the way that this book is released, right, she doesn't have to contend with the really weird stuck up its own rectum season 10 in the comics, right? Which I don't even recognize as having anything to do with the show anymore. It's Mm -hmm. just gone like to completely, it has turned into something else. I don't know what it is. And I'm reading this graphic novel, and, well, first of all, it gets off to a rocky start with Buffy, like, 
she starts off by expositing how slaying is derailing her life, and she used to be popular. This isn't an origin story, right? This takes place somewhere in the middle of season one, according to the note at the, the back of the book. So it's odd that Hicks thought we needed that context. She's Buffy. We we know what her deal is. And not only that, she does it twice, right? The, the story begins with her after the, the first action scene. She goes to school and she meets Willow and she has this whole conversation with Willow at the lockers about how she used to be like Cordelia and, you know, she used to be popular and then the thing happened and then, you know, she burned down the school and then she wasn't popular. And then afterwards, she has that whole conversation again with Willow at her house. Willow presumably already knows all of this because like in the very first episode, Buffy's like, okay, so all of this stuff happened and now I'm here, right? Like... All this exposition was already delivered and established before the characters even knew each other. And here we have this book where we're 25 pages in before the plot even takes off. Because up until then, it's all Buffy, like, just giving exposition. And then we have, like, the introduction of the antagonists, right? So it's this gang of geeks Mm -hmm. who've been turned into vampires, but they're still geeks. And they can't attend a popular vampire nightclub, which I don't know if you remember. That's not quite how things work in Sunnydale, but whatever, right? Well, I, 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 you're talking about the actual nightclub or the, how vampires work in Buffy? It's a vampire nightclub. Well, I'm going to get to the vampires, how they work in a minute. But like the whole thing that sets the plot in motion is that these geeks who have been turned into vampires are denied entry into this popular nightclub that is very strongly implied to be exclusively for vampires right because other ones like there's a the bouncer's like hey lord lucian come on in and and Mm -hmm. uh hester the lead uh geek girl is like uh hey we're vampires too why can't we come in and he says well because you're not cool if you want to be cool go kill the slayer yeah i I really like that he just sends them to kill the slayer knowing that they're gonna fail yes but and I'm I'm sad to say this, but Hicks basically completely misses the point here. Oh? Okay. The idea here is that, and we see this very clearly, like, when the vampires actually encounter Buffy and, like, they start talking, right? And, and one of them calls her a bully, and it feeds into, like, this guilt about Buffy being a former popular girl, even though we don't have... Like they never said that she ever bullied anyone. I don't. Well, know. no, but it's, it's, uh, I think it's about notions of teenagerhood sure. where you conceive of what you are and what you are is always worse. So now that she's part of the losers, she oh. automatically sees the idea of cheerleaders. And again, we have like this one page appearance by Cordelia as bullies, right? All well and good. Like I'll stipulate that much up until that point. Here's mm-hmm. the problem, though. That kind of humanized vampire that we see with these geeks who are, like, still outcasts even though they're now creatures of the night has nothing to do with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The whole reason she can spend her nights in graveyards killing vampires one after the other without dwelling on it is because in this particular series, in this particular, like, story world, vampires are demons, not people. They may have their host's memories or, or you know, like they, they have this whole mm. breakdown of how they believe that they're real, but they're not. Because how could Buffy do her job otherwise? If every vampire she killed was actually a human being, she would effectively be murdering them, right? Again. Yeah, and, and the story kind of let her off the hook because the actual sympathetic vampire losers are killed by a second party. She only kills the one who proves herself to be out and out evil. 
No, N- not, e- not even that. You know what? No, the, the she doesn't kill one of them. No, the, the, the leader of this little geek posse ends up... He is killed by her own end, right? By her own petard, After as she were. kills her friends. Yeah. But, but be- even before that, though, right? It's really dismaying to do this to Hicks because I enjoy her work so much. But the whole conversation of like how the vampire can guilt trip Buffy because she, she's still a bully. It's like, but you are not human by definition in this world, right? The fact that you're still a geek or whatever, your past identity has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that you're a vampire, which means, you're a demon, see, and, which and, means you kill people. And then on top of all that, just to add like one more little, uh, Hester, this lead vampire girl, just happens to have a magic book for summoning monsters. <laughs> this stuff doesn't even make sense on its own terms. Like, set aside, you know, I'm willing to say like, okay, the fact that it doesn't correlate with the series, eh, it's an adaptation, it's a tie-in, whatever. But even like, structurally, from the story itself, This girl has a magic book for summoning demons, but the first stage of her plan is for her and her friends to physically rush Buffy. Where was this book 20 pages ago? Well, it makes sense, I think, on the plot level, because at this point she wasn't yet willing to sacrifice her friends, and the magic book sort of demands her to to do the extra transformation work. But she does it so so matter-of-factly. Well, yeah, a few scenes later. Hicks basically undermines herself here, because... For anything regarding the discussion of, like, who's the freak and who's the geek and this whole mix-up, right? Which is nominally the point of the book. Because all of the dialogue between Buffy, Xander, and and Willow in this story is about, you know, Buffy's past, popularity, social outcast, all of this. That only makes sense if you take Hester and her friends at face value, right? That they were geeks, that they were outcasts. Yeah, yeah. And now that they're vampires, they are still outcasts, and that that causes them pain. Like, they're, they're unhappy about it, and they want it to change. And then ten pages later, Hester, with no, like, no buildup at all, says, I have a magic book, now you're all gonna die. Like, she kills her friends to summon a demon that squishes her. And then Buffy then, of course, dispatches as a matter of fact. And that's it. There's nothing more to this story. No, no, no. I, I, I disagree. I think the plot mechanics are problematic, but I think that the point of the story, the idea that people, teenagers, right? Because this is specifically about teenage Buffy and their teenage friends, create their own identities and sort of create to themselves the idea that they can't change. Because what's Buffy's afraid of? That she, can't change that she's still this image of this shallow image of a cheerleader bullied and therefore that she cannot really be friends with Xanderwell Willow and that they will leave her because she's stuck in their old identity and what these vampires sort of create to themselves their own loserhood they think they still think of themselves as losers or they're going to be losers no they don't think of themselves as losers they're oh they definitely told they are told that they're losers because they can't get into the nightclub. They're told and they act like it and they express it. You know, act like a loser. People will call you a loser. But that kind of personality dynamics, just vampires don't do that in well, this series. Well, I, 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 vampires I and Buffy... That, that sounds no, like because a fanboy va- approach. No, 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 no. But I, I would agree with it if vampires and Buffy were in any way consistent because we, you know, some vampires and Buffy are just, like you said, just disposable demons, but some of them actually show personality traits even after the transformation. Like, you remember we've seen scenes from old Spike 
where he's trying to still, you know, be with his mother and do his poem oh, for her. No, let's not talk about season seven's eatable penises. Let, let's go early. No, uh, but mean, it's still Spike part of the Drusilla, canon. Like Spike and Drusilla, for example. Yeah. Absolutely have personalities, right? They yeah. Have characters that, and, but at the same time, when you think about Drusilla, she is not a figure of sympathy despite everything that Angel did to her because she's a vampire, right? There was never any moment throughout all of Drusilla's, all the, all of her screen time, whenever she was around, she was a source of guilt for Angel, but no one ever said, gee, poor Drusilla. She was a monster who was killing people. She had to be, dist- like, she ultimately survived, right? But, there was never any moment of hesitation of like, oh, you know, you had a really tough life and, you know, I get, maybe I'll let you go. Maybe I'll like, I'll talk to you. Buffy doesn't talk to these people because if you started assuming that every vampire she had to face has like the backstory of the person they killed, then it's like, okay. Buffy the serial killer. Buffy the murderer, basically. Yeah. And they, <laughs> and they have, not only that, like every time they've tried, like you remember Harmony, right? Yeah. Cordelia's uh, lieutenant, whatever. She gets yeah. turned into a vampire. And when she turns up in the later seasons, she's still a ditz. She's like this blonde little, oh, hi, isn't that cool? Yay, get me some pom-poms or whatever. But she will casually murder someone just because she's hungry, right? The fact that she's a ditz and the fact that she presumes to maintain her previous identity doesn't change the fact that she's a demon. So for this story to even work... On its mm. own logic, right? You have to assume that when Hester's talking about being an outcast, that that's something that genuinely bothers her. But for that to be true, she would have to still consider herself human in some way. Okay. Now, I was never as big of a fan as Buffy, as you, I believe, or, you know, many other people that, that knew it. So for me, the, you know, doing those kind of things with the canon is not a problem, mostly because, well, as far as I'm concerned, Buffy ended after season three. Yes, I'm with you yeah. on that. I am completely uh, with you on it, that. Because it's a show about growing up. And once you became an adult, you know, the, there was no point to it. The point move on to Angel, I'd say. Which was about being adult in an adult world. The, yes. And then she moved out of high school. So it's like... But the uh, people who were growing up were the human cast. That arc of, like, maturing and finding your identity and finding out who you are and being okay with who you are and growing up never applied to vampires. It it can't apply to vampires, like, by definition. So my problem here is that, like, Hicks is trying to impose the framework that would be completely appropriate in a different story to this one. And here it's like, first of all, Buffy has no reason to feel guilty because... Yes, she may have been a popular girl in the past, but the fact that Hester's like, look at you, you're blonde, and you're, like, tall and athletic, and you you have, like, friends, so you must have been, like, this popular bully based on her appearance, right? Yeah, yeah, and, because and they're shallow. Because there's, you know, Buffy wasn't a bully, ever. Well, do, in the she, TV show, we don't know, like, young yeah, pre-Slayer Buffy. Probably for a good reason. Yeah, right. Like and I think, and I think it works because it allows other characters, these vampires, to project onto her this image. And because of her exact emotional state at the time, she buys into their own projection. And maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. The point isn't what she was. The point is the way people view other people in reductive manners. 
And I think it works. As a hypothesis for a plot, it works. Executed <laughs> in this particular uh, book, okay. I think it fails completely because it requires, like, for you to get to that point, you have to make certain leaps of logic here. I don't think so. I think I think yeah. she. I think she made it clear. I just think there wasn't enough room to develop it properly because it felt choppy. You know, it, she moved too fast. From uh, hello, I'm Buffy. Pages, Tom. She spends twenty pages delivering expository dialogue. Of course, there wasn't room to develop anything here. Well, it's setting up status quo that hasn't been in turn for years and years now, right? Because the Buffy comics haven't touched the high school years in five years, and the TV show, God. Yeah, more than a decade now. Yes, but at the same time, it's not like she does anything with any of these characters that would require more than a superficial awareness of who they are. Like, well, what, what's Xander's character arc in this book? Well, Xander, no. It's all about Buffy. Right. It is all about Buffy. Like, Xander, Giles, and Willow are present in this book to be talked at and to reassure Buffy that they're there for her. Which is great if you're looking for a moment of friendship, uh, you know, scene, but I don't understand why that's, like, that's ultimately the point of this book, right? For them to reassure her that even though she used to be popular and she doesn't want to be popular again because, you know, she doesn't make friends with Cordelia and she doesn't walk around, you know, trying to be the social girl again because she's the Slayer. And they're all like, no, no, it's okay, we're here for you. That's it. That's the end point here. I just don't see why the point here is reasserting their friendship at a point in time where they had literally just met, right? Angel isn't in the story. Buffy hasn't even, like, attached herself to him yet, right? Because there's a line of dialogue where she says to Willow, yeah, oh, you know, there's this cute guy, and he said his name is Angel. So, like, so this is right at the beginning of season one. Why are we having, like, deep and meaningful conversations about the power of friendship? They're not there yet. I don't know. It was just, it was such a strange read, especially from someone like Hicks who clearly understood the show well enough to put her own spin on these themes 10 years ago. I don't know. I was really, really disappointed. It just, I, it feels really I, 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 I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't expecting that much. I think on the writing side, it did what it set out to do with limitations and problems, but I think it set out what it went to do. I'm not so big on the art by uh, Yishin Lee. It's a bit too, you know, clean and smooth. Too much anime, not enough manga, as it were. I wonder if that's a problem that comes up a lot with artistic representations of live-action shows. Because, thinking about it, the Dark Horse Buffy comics have been going on for years now, right? Oh, yeah. And the appearance of these characters tends to change so drastically from artist to artist. Like, I've seen at least... Because because every artist is trying to model it on the actors, but they're their usually artist style is not... Is not fit for just trying to be based on actual humans, right? Exactly. I would prefer Hicks to draw it herself, because if you're going to do artist. something... Well, A, she's a better artist, and B, if you're going to do something based on real-life humans and characters, you know, just go for the cartoonist representation over realistic, because realistic is going to disappoint you every single time. Yeah, you might as it's well. Not, it's, not, it's never going to be the actors. So you just, you know, go for broke, whatever. Fatal lack of ambition is is what I would say here. It's because I like you know the scenes where she's just imagining stuff going on, and you have all these flat two D characters of her friends flying around her. That that's those scenes work because there, it's not trying to do something that the TV show would have done. Um, it's the magic book problem again because like 
If this is early enough in their relationship that Buffy has to literally explain to Willow and Xander over and over again what she was like before she came to Sunnydale, then their friendship hasn't reached the point where she is legitimate, like, where she would know them enough to be anxious about them leaving her. Like, imagining what they would say if they knew what she was, quote-unquote, really like. And again, like, the fact that all of this anxiety is caused by a vampire telling her she looks like a bully is something that stretches disbelief to the breaking point for me because, Mm. you know, she's a vampire. Just stake her and move on. So, I... Guess that's it. Oh, we 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 end up in a split. Yeah, it's, it's a split vote, everybody. And it's one that I do feel bad about because, again, like I have so much respect for Hicks as a writer, but this was sloppy. It was not ambitious. Well, just just read the Nameless City then her graphic yeah. novel that just came out. I'm sure that just... that's much better. And she draws it. Looks great. Yeah. So this was it for the reviews and the previews and the news. And this our is very another first Skype episode. Yeah, our Skype episode. <laughs> well, I like first it. of many. Yes, first of many. Uh, Till next time. We'll. I'm Tom Shapira, and I'm Sean Edry. So bon appetit.